Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And uh, this is Black August and in August since this show started in August 11 years ago uh, on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and with the goal of getting information out to the community about uh, places in the African diaspora where uh, there was underreportage and the voices of the people were going unheard. And so this is the reason why the show was started. And I'm just returning from uh, Point Comfort uh, at Fort Monroe, Virginia, where uh, the nation uh, sort of honored the uh, 1619-2019 uh, first African landing at uh, Point Comfort uh, so long ago when uh, 20 or so people of African descent from the nation that is now called Angola were traded for provisions. And this particular uh, commemoration, uh, which started, um, I guess it really started on Thursday, with a um, an open hearing uh, of the 400 Years of African American History Commission. Uh, that Friday was um, there was a really wonderful um, tribute and commemoration at the Tucker Family Cemetery, where the descendants of of the uh, I guess the first person. Um, uh, to be documented of African descent born in the uh the English British uh colony their descendants of him and so anyway um the weekend um had a series of of uh historic uh commemorative events as well as uh libations at Buckrow Beach at sunrise that Saturday and um luncheons with um, political pioneers also on Friday and on Sunday was the uh, National Day of Healing and where at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and at various locations at national parks throughout the country, bells were rung, one bell ring for each one of the um, of the 100 years, making the 400 years. And um, I wasn't sure if the um, the national parks here in the San Francisco Bay Area were, were doing the bell ringers because coincidentally, which I think is pretty cool, um, that because uh, Fort Monroe is um, a part of the National uh, Park Services the National Park Services also had uh, its birthday anniversary that day. I think the National Park Services was founded in uh, 19, um, 1916. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, this is, um, I'm going to play a commemorative medley that I put together last year for our 10th anniversary show. And then tomorrow... August 29th, I am, which is the actual anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, 
And uh, I'm going to see if I can uh, get some folks on the air uh, live to talk about the uh, 400 years of African-American history and the uh, commemoration, recent commemoration of the first African landing uh, at um, the old Point Comfort uh, at Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia. So, so that's the plan, and the the uh, and I'm looking at tomorrow afternoon, and then at UC Berkeley, um, they are kicking off a um, a series of of um, of events, <clears throat> um, beginning with this um, really really wonderful, and I'm going to find it for you. This really wonderful. Um, uh, let's see, high school of business. Uh, this really wonderful um, symposia, symposium all day Friday, and it's free. So um, definitely want want folks to know about that um, so that you can attend. And as I speak, I'm looking for it so that I can give you the details. Oh, here it is. No, that's not it. Um let me see, because I just got it and I sent it to a friend of mine. Uh, yeah, so I want to give you the details so you can go register um, for, um, oh, here it is. Yeah, 400 years, marking 400 years of resistance to slavery and oppression at UC Berkeley. And it's uh, part of the Haas Institute, um, and it's a year-long initiative. Um uh, marking um, the 400-year anniversary of the beginning of slavery in North America and um, resistance to slavery and injustice. And you can visit 400years.berkeley.edu, 400years.berkeley.edu. And um, and let me see. Um, yeah, the kickoff, which is tomorrow, a day-long symposium, August 30th, it's uh, – what time does it start? <laughs> you can uh, it's free and opening remarks um are um by the Chancellor Carol Christ and Oscar uh De Boone. And there's gonna be a panel on slavery, memory and afterlife featuring Leslie Harris, Christina Sharp, Stephanie Jones Rogers and Gabriel Foreman and Tina Sachs. Uh there's gonna be a a panel on the second afterlife featuring Dennis Childs and Talitha LaFloria and Dickie Jones. There's going to be a panel on power and resistance featuring Waldo Martin, Charles Henry, Charlene Carruthers, and Jovan Scott Lewis. And then the closing keynote is featuring John A. Powell, who is um, the director of the center there. Um, and then there are going to be a series of other events, screenings and conversations and book events um, throughout the year. Um, they have up to October 23rd uh listed. So so anyway, uh and then others can be are going to be added throughout the year. So you want to go to um to the uh website to register again 400years.berkeley.edu for this free symposium which looks really awesome. And uh, it starts at 8. Well, there's breakfast at 8:30 and the symposium start opens at 9. So you can get there for eight thirty and have a little breakfast, and then uh, it's gonna it's gonna get on the way. And then there's lunch uh, that's going to be offered. Um, there's gonna be um, some 
creative arts in there. Um, Latanya Tigner and Dimensions Dance Theater is going to open the afternoon schedule. Um, uh, Aya De Leon is going to perform some of her wonderful work in the beginning uh, for that 9 a.m. And there's going to be a reception and book signing at 5.15 to 6.30. So it's going to be all day, but it's going to be really, really awesome. And I will put the link here um, uh, you know, on the website. It's already in wandaspicks.com, so some of you all already know about this. Um, but for those who don't, yeah. So I just wanted to let you know about that. And, uh, yeah, it just... It's it's been a real joy, and I want to thank everyone who has been a faithful listener for the past eleven years, and um, and I look forward to your continuing and certainly spread the word about Wanda's Picks, uh, a black arts and cultural program that believes that artists are the true revolutionaries, and if we don't tell our stories, they won't be ter- told correctly.
Good evening and welcome to Wanda Six, a Black Arts and Culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Destiny Muhammad walking on water. And this is uh, Black August, and we're also having the uh, the national um, prison strike, which goes until September 9th. And this is also the week of the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and the 10th anniversary of Wanda Sticks, which began on the third anniversary of Hurricane Katrina in um, 2008. And so I was just thinking about what am I going to do to mark this auspicious occasion, uh, the 10th anniversary. And so I was going to put together all these clips uh, for two hours, and you could sort of travel with me over the past 10 years. But uh, that was a lot of work, and that didn't happen. But what I am going to do is play uh, the first show, a part of the first show that I broadcast in 2008, and we were reflecting on Katrina, and at that time there was another storm coming in, and people were going to have to perhaps evacuate, so they were watching the weather and packing their things. And so a lot of people moved to California, and so we have a lot of Katrina survivors, people that didn't go back. Some people did, but some people didn't. And so I was speaking to um, uh, uh, Tisha, uh, who's a poet, uh, who, and we've also, we were also doing a lot of fundraisers here. And I met her when her mother uh, was doing a reading at a bookstore that no longer exists, Alice Bookstore, which was really nice. It was on Alcatraz Avenue in North Oakland or Berkeley. I'm not sure which side of Alcatraz it was on. So anyway. Um, She is going to be our first guest, and uh, that particular show was August 29, 2008. And then we're going to end with another show, which was September 5, 2008. And I think that was. um, And uh, and so I just played the walk-in on water because there's a lot of water happening around this time of the year. It's hurricane season. So, so anyway, so here is the first part, and then we're going to just roll right into the next part. And uh, the other um, segment, it starts with an update on what's happening there in uh, in New Orleans. People do evacuate, so it's like a ghost town. And so I'm speaking to someone who's there on the ground. And and then um, there's some other interviews, and we end with uh, a conversation with the directors of the film Trouble the Water, and uh, and uh, it's a really good film if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's available. So here you are. Enjoy, and uh, thanks so much for being, um, you know, uh, listeners over the past ten years. Don't hear from you all much, but when I see you all out and about, you do tell me how things are. So that's always good to know. And if you ever want to drop me a line, um, can, um, info at wandaspicks.com. And, uh, yeah, I look forward, love to hear from you.
know what it means to miss New Orleans.
as my brother roams around aimlessly, wondering why did it have to be me faced with more adversity than anyone not there could ever know. So it really does hurt me to witness these fools on my TV talking about what possibly went right. Not without a fight will I allow this madness that is George Bush and company return my people to a feeling of subservience relative to slavery, especially not in the eye of their bravery, taking everything they have experienced in and going with the flow as if their souls were the wind. You had rest assured that getting no rest assured, you are crazed, dazed, and sometimes people filled with pain. And on top of that nightmare, they were sleeping in the rain, sleeping with the sewage drain. And then when someone finally decided to move their ass, already strapped for cash, you send them into the pits of hell, the southern swell of racists who ain't over being classes and who are ready to create additional madness. And here I am looking at this television screen, listening to interpretation and rephrasing, waiting for somebody to tell me exactly what they mean, or better yet, tell me why my auntie had to sleep on I-10 at Claiborne Avenue for three days. And yes, my family does pray, but just think, she had to sleep with her backpack under her head, surviving off two slices of bread, and the day prior, she had to walk in toxic water up to her breast, barely any life left in her chest, looking for an opportunity to get some rest or safety at best. And where she was sent was destroyed, and there lies a whole new void. As army trucks drive right past, if you enter her mind, the sensations will last. I can just see, I, can't, I just can't see for the life of me why this went on for so long. And I know that my people are strong and that their survival skills would eventually kick in, but it's hard to see my jambalaya red beans and rice with a side of jazz-filled blues floating. Lives, dreams, hopes, and aspirations, jobs, educations, and lifelong creations. And on that first Tuesday, I called to find my cousin Demetrius and miraculously reached Dominica instead, an old lady lying alone in a nursing home bed. They evacuated others, and they left me here to die. The tears automatically welled up in my eye. She said, I can't find my son. I'm blind, and I can't see, and nobody is left here to see after me. I haven't had any food and no water either. I can't get up and go to the bathroom, but I can't keep sitting in my own stool neither. Can you find somebody to help me? I just need somebody to help me. Can you imagine that that would, what that would do to a person sitting 3,000 miles away? And, Lord, forgive me, but it just was not enough to pray. I needed to see somebody in a helicopter whisking Dominica away. And what about the people that aren't really poor, but they certainly aren't rich, who have to start over just like anybody else, starting over from the pits of a ditch? Look at my brother, a two-lane-educated entrepreneur, his business, his dreams, and his state of mind drowned in a New Orleans sewer, drained right along with the uncounted dead. So I'm sitting here trying to figure the relief strategy in my head. Turn every private company around trying to deliver food. Don't drop that water from that plane because somebody might shoot. And don't give away your store's products. Just let the people loot, as it is called. That way people can talk about how they are so appalled. Because that makes for good television and prides a forum for people's criticism. Didn't we just repair the space shuttle in space? That tells me that somehow we could have done that we could have done more somehow. I weep long infected tears for the people of Biloxi, Slidell and the Gulfport right now. As we speak, my town reeks and continues to leak poison into the water supply. And we all we got from our sweet little governor was a photo op to cry. And I love the news reports of local failures to react. It's very easy to turn it all around on the mayor who was black. I hope for the sake of the people who are suffering that information is given to them. 
so that they don't have to survive off of rumors and presidential spin. And George, well, what can I say? I knew that he wasn't it. But I need to let his mom know that while my people are underprivileged, their spirits will never quit. And in the end, we all know that somebody should have, somebody should have moved faster. And my vote goes to the politician who will save me in a natural disaster. Oh, that was beautiful. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. So how do you feel, um, you know, on the third anniversary of this disaster and the levees are still in the same state that they were in three years ago? And um, I don't know if Obama has made it there yet. Um, have you heard yet? from? I, I don't know. Okay. I, I, I'm not positive um, about what he's doing. But I'll tell you what, I, I feel that um, – it is going to be up to the people to really fight and ensure people like you and and me and um, the gentleman who who spoke from cross was it um, uh, I can't remember his name who came and spoke and he's doing a lot of work in New Orleans right now um, the fundraiser supported his organization. It's going to be up to people like that to continue and CC going out and making it clear. Yes, going out and continuing to ensure that um, that we hold the the right people accountable, um, and and that we and this is a part of Barack's message, and and I hope that he stays true to this no matter what happens. Is that we the people are responsible for ensuring that government does what it's supposed to do. And we have to educate and ensure that that people understand the stakes, you know, by of 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 who we're putting in different places. You know, who's going to have our backs? Who's going to make sure that when these natural disasters happen, that we're prepared and organized, and that people are educated. The less educated people are, the less they know. The less ability. The reason why so many people stayed behind last time was because you have a whole a, a city full of people who were, and not everybody, but a large percentage of people who didn't, who thought that it was going to be okay to stay behind, you know, or who just didn't have the means to do anything different. And so I think by ensuring that people are educated and really understand how the system is supposed to work, then we can make sure the system works that way. And I think that's the only thing that's going to fix this. I don't think it's any particular politician in office. I don't think it's any particular um strategy other than that. That's my opinion. Right, yeah. <sighs> yeah, I um, had to take a deep breath yesterday. I had to call all my relatives and see how they were doing because, you know, not being there, hearing all this information about these hurricanes, I was thinking that it was the danger was imminent, like, you know, like today, yeah. like yesterday I heard about it and or we'd been hearing about it all week and like today was the day that they will be all flooded. But my cousin, whose birthday is today, um, mm-hmm. uh, he said that uh, it's coming, you know, that way, but he said he's not even going to entertain that thought that the hurricane is going to hit New Orleans, and he said it wouldn't get to them probably until about Wednesday anyway. Yeah, because I know she, uh, my, my sister-in-law was saying that, I mean, they didn't have to look to doing anything until about Monday if they were going to have to evacuate. And they'd know because they'd send, you know, notice that everybody needs to evacuate and they have a plan, but that it wasn't today. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. But it is it's a scary thought, I'm sure, for people there who again the same thing. Um I was just talking to my, my cousin who he's from New Orleans as well, but he's uh he's a dentist uh in uh Vacaville and he um he and I stayed up days upon days trying to locate our family. So it, it it was just as much of an experience for us being here. We were talking about this. It was just as much of an experience for us as it was for um, those who were there because we were actually, like, the go-between. You know, we had phones that worked, but we couldn't reach, you know, people. And we couldn't and, – and as we reached people, we had to make sure that other folks got word so that they knew that so-and-so was okay, you know. So it was, it, it was, and being 3,000 miles away and knowing that it's nothing that you could really do was also very tragic, and I, I certainly don't want to go through that again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, sorry. Uh, do you want to read another poem? I'm having some technical difficulties presently. <laughs> oh, Because so I, okay. I, so I can't see if anybody else has called me. So, oh. Um, yeah, so if you I, have another poem you'd like to share. Sure, I have the poem that I wrote, um, that I said at the um, event. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, and this is um, this is my happy poem. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was born and raised in New Orleans. Y'all ain't heard me. Eating red beans and rice, turnip and collard greens that my grandma had grown in her own backyard, as if she was still in Zachary, Louisiana, second generation from the plantation, one road in and one road out, white people and black people running about, talking about how we all family. She just kept it going. I was born and raised in the city of Jazz, the French quarters and Bourbon Street where Spanish, African, and French they meet. Spent most of my time in the 7th Ward on Industry Street, around the corner from the Marching 100 at St. Augustine, where being of dark complexion did not gleam self-esteem, and the sun shined so hot off my eczema-ridden skin I could not handle how it shined and beamed. I was born and raised in New Orleans. Have you heard of Project Green? The colors of the rails that jumped off the bricks where my cousins and me played pickup sticks. Project Green, a symbol of good old New Orleans. We moved back a town round the way of Orleans Parish Prison, Tent City, the courthouse steps, Tulane, and broad my vision, not too far from the Calio or the Calliope, as the rest of the world was saying. That's just the symbol of that internal and lifelong New Orleans twang. And even amongst my own, I stood millions of miles apart, more than my dark skin, my skinny legs, or my uncle with the bad heart. Heart Troubles was his name. You cannot claim, pave his claim to fame, as it was just natural. New Orleans is where I was at, but I was really looking across the mighty Mississippi, knowing that one day it would all change for me, and that I would accept and see why I was chosen by God to be delivered to New Orleans. But I love New Orleans, fried chicken wings and a jambalaya lifestyle, and I knew that if it only lasted a while, I would be forever indebted to New Orleans for all of my life stories and scenes, and that is enough. I sang on the porch of my grandma's house, made movies based on movies, and acted out Cajun-style soaps. New Orleans, my city of crime, but I never saw murder, I never saw dope, because in New Orleans I got a good old-fashioned southern upbringing. I ran on, rode my bikes on, and kept on playing, kept on singing, that good New Orleans upbringing. 
below sea level, playing outside in the middle of a hurricane, and most people elsewhere would have thought we were insane, but we brought our baby dolls out on the porch while Uncle Byrne taped up the windows. We played and the water flowed. It flowed and flowed down the pipe drain, and if I could, I would ordain myself as a Catholic, because that is what all the Creoles are, and insofar as all the regular black people were Baptists, Sunday morning spitting and hollering and preparing to bring on the Holy Ghost, traveling up and down the Gulf Coast, back to New Orleans, back to my brick and green, back to my red beans and rice and turnip and collard greens, back to Industry Street, back to where Gravia and Gallosa meet, back to my good old, good old New Orleans. I'm taking everything I gained and I'm focusing to aim higher than the grounds of good old New Orleans. Uh, that's a beautiful poem. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that really makes you feel happy. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah, it's real uplifting. And I like yeah. the way you read it, too. It's real beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you so much okay. for, um, you know, for coming on first. And I'm so happy you called me early because if you wouldn't have called me, I would have been talking to myself. <laughs> and I'm to glad, you. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have to have you on again. Um, Absolutely. So share some of your poetry and, you know, what you are doing here, you know, um, and because, you, you know, when you, I met you and your mother and your two, you have two daughters, right? Two daughters, yes. Yeah, yeah, just look like a really lovely family. Thank you. Yeah, it would be great to sort of hear about your grandmother that, you know, um, valued education. And, oh, yes. And how your family is staying together even though, you know, physically and geographically, you're not in the same vicinity, but you're together. You're Absolutely. My grandmother, I just want to say, valued education. My grandmother was second generation off a plantation in Zachary, Louisiana. Really? And so, and she was not educated, mm-hmm. but she valued it anyway. So that's that's how deep the roots are in my family. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you, and you have a great day. You too. And a wonderful weekend. All right, you too. Thank you. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, you know, made its uh, visit and, uh, and you know, followed up the coast. And, and now we've got Hannah and Ike and some other uh, storms coming through. I want to find out what's going on with folks. A lot of people are still not back home. I spoke to Malik Rahim really briefly, and he is not able to make any commitments right now because he's still, um, I believe, in Mississippi. Uh, he uh, and the volunteers at Common Ground relocated to to Hattiesburg uh, to stay with a comrade, um, uh, Curtis Austin, who is a uh, professor at the University of um, Mississippi at Hattiesburg. So um, while I wait for my first caller to call in, I'm going to put on um, a piece called When the Levees Broke um, by Clint Black.
Hi, we've been joined by Robert King, um, who spoke with us last week. Um, Robert King has a new book coming out, um, Cry from the Bottom. Is that what the name of it is? Uh, yeah, it's really from the bottom of the heap. Yeah, uh, thank you. I don't have my notes. Yeah. <laughs> Cry from the bottom of the heap, or from the bottom of the heap? Uh, yeah, it's from the bottom of the heap. Okay, you know you're really faint, and this time I'm going to tell you to speak up because last time we couldn't hear you really well when we listened to it afterwards. Okay, can you hear me now? I'll uh, try to keep it like that. Can you hear me now? That's a, little, that's a lot better. Mm-hmm. That's a lot okay. better. Okay, well, you know, I can't get anybody on the phone. Um, maybe people are like are still in crisis. I know Malik is. So tell me what you know about what happened, um, you know, in the Gulf, because I know you've been in touch with folks, but you have people there still. And so tell me, you know, sort of like, um, you know, what you've been, you've been sort of updating me throughout the week about, um, you know, the damages and stuff like that. So why don't you tell me what's going on there in New Orleans and in Mississippi and the surrounding areas that you're aware of? Uh, well, the thing that I'm aware of uh, is that, you know, uh, the, the Gustav wasn't as, it didn't do as much damage as, as anticipated. And as far as I know, um, the resident, as of yesterday, was allowed to return, even though it was supposed to have been um, yeah, yeah. Some, some, some returned on Wednesday, and the majority returned yesterday. And I, I got word from a relative that everything was, everything was okay. Uh, she lives in Algiers on the West Bank. Oh, okay. Yes, she lives actually right around the corner from Malik. Excellent. And yes, and so everything is pretty cool. It wasn't as much damage. It was more, little wind, wind damage as if you know. Uh, not a lot of water, things like that. Okay. Um, as far as I know, there was some relief workers and uh, who were in New Orleans on standby in case they were needed. People left from here, some comrades left from here, Austin, and some left from some other places. And um, I have Jackie. I have Jackie calling me now. She's in New Orleans. Okay. I have Jackie somewhere. Yeah. She's. Uh, can you can you hear me, Wanda? Yeah, I can hear you. Mm-hmm. Jackie, can you hear me? Yes, I'm on doing an interview with Jackie, uh, with uh, with uh, Wanda. Wanda, Jackie, you could yeah, have Jackie to call up, us. It's up. okay, uh, Jackie. Oh. What about calling that number, Wanda? It's a new radio show. If you got enough time, and she's trying to get some inf- information on Katrina. Well, not Katrina, Gustav. On oh, Gustav, <laughs> I'm so sorry, <laughs> Gustav. Yeah, all of them are Katrina. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, because in the storm, weather had the same impact to my, in my opinion, and when it upset people's house like that and run them out of town, you know, it's devastating. But uh, look, the number that you need to call if you want to be on the show this morning, and you could give a, a very recent update because you are there in the territory. Uh, you have a pencil? Okay, it's 347 4610. Okay. Yeah, the exact date uh, I'll be in San Francisco will be uh, from the 17th till the 29th. Is she going to call us? Yes, she's going to call. You're going to call Wanda right now. Okay, hang on with yeah, me. Yeah, because we're on the air. Okay, oh, that's cool. excellent. Okay, okay, bye. So you were a good choice to call. This is excellent. I guess so. So <laughs> she'll be on in a minute. And okay, whenever she calls you, you could just... Uh, I don't know if you want me to hold on as well, but... Well, no, you can both be on together. 
Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. She should be calling in in a little bit. Okay. But that's as far as I know. And Malik, as far as, like you pointed out, I think you pointed out mm-hmm. that Malik is still in uh, Hattiesburg at this time. I'm not sure. As of yesterday, I know he was. Right, yeah, he is, because I just spoke to him just, like, right before I called you to save me. Because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, some of my people are calling in. Okay, I've been talking to King, and he's been talking to Geronimo and, you know, folks. And do you have any people in, in uh, Lafayette, or do you know anybody in Lafayette? Um, there, That's a possibility. I do have some relatives. There are some kings from um, Uncle, but I yeah. don't know them all. Playing, oh, so you haven't uh, talked to anybody area. because... Um, I know someone here, her name is Kobe, and her mother and father, and I think her brothers and sisters. I mean, no one evacuated, and when I was watching the movement of the storm, it was it was going, you know, it, it was going to hit Lafayette, right. and so I think they sustained, you know, a lot of damage, and I was just wondering if you knew of anything. Well, Scott and uh, Scott, the, the crew from here, yes. they went to, they left from, uh, they went to uh, Homer, from Homer. So Scott, from Scott who rescued you? They tried to touch with. Uh, Is that the same uh, Scott uh, King that rescued you when you were um, stranded? Well, uh, Scott. Uh, well, actually, no. He didn't. He he came along with Brandon in an attempt to res- to search for to look for me. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it was Brandon who eventually sent the rangers to my house, who came, you know, and I decided to leave in a boat. Right. But Scott, yeah, he is the same Scott. He's the co-founder of a Common Ground as well, okay. along with Malik and Sharon. Yes. Uh, Sharon Johnson, as you right, know. Right, yeah. Um, so, yes, he went, uh, he uh, he left with a lot of relief, a lot of stuff for relief in case it was needed. And um, they dropped it along the way in certain places, but certain places didn't need it. Like in, I uh, talked to G yesterday, mm-hmm. and he said that they were, you know, everybody in the community abandoned. He didn't leave, he stayed. And everybody oh, just Geron- banned Geronimo stayed? Geronimo stayed? Uh, some other residents stayed as well, and they, uh, they kind of kept the community together, cleaned up. They had they, um, mandated their own uh, cleanup crews in the community. And, and so even though they were without power and electricity, mm-hmm. everything else was pretty cool. Right. Yeah, um, I was talking to my uh, my auntie and my cousins in Picayune, and they ended up not evacuating. And, and they, um, they, didn't have, they still have electricity, but their um, Internet went out and uh, just had some wind damage, but not, not much of anything else. It wasn't like, you know, three years ago. And then, um, but I haven't heard from my relatives that live in, in Biloxi or Gulfport or um, Ocean Springs or Waveland. Have you heard anything about what it looks like, you know, like close to, and also um, Bay St. Louis, have you heard of anything about what it looks like really close to the water, like along the, um, the shore, shoreline? <clears throat> well, no, but uh, uh, Jackie is on. Jackie just came from Hattiesburg. I think she was oh, Hattiesburg. So she no, she hasn't called me. She hasn't <laughs> called him yet. Uh-uh. Um, I wonder mm-hmm. if she tried if she tried to call. Let me call her back. I can call her back while I'm, I'm okay. talking with you. And okay, I'll well, that. I could put on another song and um, and then, you know, while you call. <clears throat> okay, I'll do that now. And, and then, and the, and then um, you know, you'll still be on the line and I'll... You know, I'll just click back, you know, when I think maybe you're finished talking to her. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, so we're going to take a break with Moon over Bourbon Street Live. It's with Sting and Chris Bodie.
Thankfully, um, most of the city still doesn't have power. Um, I'm in the seventh ward. I came back on uh, uh, Tuesday morning at about, uh, sorry, it was Wednesday morning at about 10 o'clock. We had no trouble getting in because they had made uh, Buku announcements on the radio that New Orleans was closed and no one was allowed to come back. Ray Nagin wasn't letting anyone in. Um, but we just decided we'd try it anyway, and there were no roadblocks, nothing. It was basically open. Um, now, apparently, traffic is still crazy trying to get back in, and most of the city is still without power. Oh, wow. Yeah, but you know, Wanda, this was basically, this was like a, an elementary school fire drill. Oh. Hi, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear anything. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't either. Um, yeah, this will happen when I have too many windows open. Um, ah. <laughs> let me uh, see how I can close it, because that's what I had trouble with last time. Okay. Um, uh, trying to, uh, to not have... Oh, uh, can you hear that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the National Guard is definitely here in full force. Yeah, we've got tons of National Guard. Uh, I was delayed on getting on the phone because there's NOPD everywhere, and one of them just decided to talk to me about my experience. Coast uh, Gustav, I'm standing on the corner. There's a Hummer next to me. Um, there's more cops and military than there is people in New Orleans right now, which is not that different than Katrina. So you were there when um, after Katrina hit? I was here about uh, 10 days after Katrina. Yep. I wasn't here for Katrina. I came after. Okay, yeah. And so are you are you living there now or are you going I am. There? I just bought a house with a friend of mine here in New Orleans. So we're in the 7th Ward. Okay, nice. Yeah, I visited the 7th Ward when I was there in July. Uh, there's a place called The Porch. Do you know The Porch? Yeah, we're right next to The Porch's Community Garden. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. But like I said, um, we have no electric. We don't expect to be the first to get electric back either, you know, because it's a poor black neighborhood. Yes. Um, yeah. 
So the, the Garden District has and French Quarter has, and that's about all. Yeah, so what's going on with regards to um, people are saying that they're discouraging. It seems like they don't want people to return even though they were promised this time that they could return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no. Like I said, when I um, we evacuated to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which was about two hours away, and it took us nine hours to get there, which is insane. I mean, I know that uh, Negan and FEMA and everyone is bragging about how well everything went, but uh, but their contraflow doesn't work. Nine hours to get to Hattiesburg on the Sunday is ridiculous. And then they made Buku announcements not turned to New Orleans, that it wasn't safe, don't come back, don't come back, you will be turned away. And we just said, forget it, we'll try it. And um, we rolled in without a single roadblock uh, Wednesday morning at about 9 o'clock. Okay. And we had no problems. And then I guess other people got word that they could roll in, and then traffic just became crazy, um, and people have had a hard time getting back. But, yeah, they're discouraging people to come back. I mean, there's no electric. In some places, there's no water. But I think the middle of the state was damaged a little bit uh, a little bit better than New Orleans this time, like yeah. Baton Rouge and St. John's Parish. And some actually saw some of the Plaquemines and further south also had some damage. Yeah, so do you know about, um, for instance, Lafayette, um, what, what it looks like there? I don't know Lafayette. I have uh, I have some comrades who spent the night in Lafayette, and um, I mean they said that's where FEMA was camping out, um, ready to respond north or south or whatever in Louisiana, wherever they needed to be. So I'm not. I have no idea. I couldn't be the one to report, but um, firsthand. But from what I understood, Lafayette was hang- was all right. Uh-huh. Yeah. What about um, you know in Mississippi? Um, so you know with regards to Hattiesburg, because I know I was speaking to. Um, to Curtis on the phone, I think it was Monday, and as it, you know, a lot of wind. And then as we were speaking, he said it looked like a tornado was forming, and he had to go. So, could you talk a little bit about the damage sustained in in Mississippi, particularly along the coast? I'm talking about Biloxi and Gulfport and basically mm-hmm. and Wayland. Those particular areas, did you notice, or do you know of anything? How yeah, well, um, we actually we stay with Curtis. Um, that was our contact in Hattiesburg, and he's amazing. Hats off to him for organizing it. Um, but, yeah, we had tornado watches and flash flooding watches. As far as I know, there was only one tornado um, that touched down where 59 hits I-10 um, as far as that area. There was a few north of us in Laurel County, Mississippi, that did touch down. And then um, the Gulf Coast, we did some recon on Wednesday, uh, early Wednesday, and the Gulf Coast uh, reconnaissance, we just went to survey the area to see whether or not we needed to send first responders there. And um, and basically it was down power lines and trees, which is no different than New Orleans. Um, we also had a crew that rolled through Homa down to Kokiri, um, which I might be pronouncing right. It might be Kokiri, I'm not sure. But um, they rolled down south through Homa, and that's where a lot of the flooding actually occurred but it was in pockets. So instead of it being like an entire um, area or community devastated, it was pockets of homes that were underwater and roofs ripped off. Okay. Um, what about, um, you know, people that were, you know, shut in or people in the hospital? Because some people did actually die um, that were moved from hospitals. And I was wondering mm-hmm. uh, if you know, this, you know, could you tell us what happened, like people that were elderly or people with disabilities? Um, uh, do you think that 
the response was better for that particular community than it was three years ago? Well, I think the it was a it was an urge overkill the response. Again, I it's like it was a little bit like a school fire drill, and I I would give them a failing grade um, overall. I mean, there's no reason it should take nine hours to get to Hattiesburg from New Orleans if if everything is running well. You know, that's ridiculous. And it was on the third day of of evacuation. You know, it was the mandatory evacuation. Um, as far as like. The hospitals, elderly, and special needs, they rolled everyone out early. So that is actually, that was much better than with Katrina if you have the resources to move people out, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you notice that, um, like, some people stayed. Um, do you know any of those folks that stayed in New Orleans? I um, do, actually. I do. And I can give you some context. I know some independent journalists who did stay in New Orleans. Um and some close friends. And again, it was heavy winds. It was heavy rain, sporadic. Um, but and some the the levees in the ninth, there was water coming over top. Um, it it was a, psychologically, it was terrifying. You know, a lot of people are suffering from PTSD, and and are just really. I mean, you know, a slight wind is traumatic in New Orleans at this point for most of the community. And so people were just freaked out, you know. And so I think the hardest thing was to just stay calm and say, you know, New Orleans has been here for centuries, and y'all have survived many hurricanes. You know, it's not always going to be like Katrina. Mm-hmm. So the hardest thing is just keeping your cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm so happy that you called King this morning. Because yeah. <laughs> my folks that were supposed to call this morning, you know, um, you know, for my opening session, opening um, part of the program to let people know sort of what's happening since last week on my first show, we, you know, sort of looked back three years and didn't know that we were actually going to have a, you know, a sort of a, a repeat of the same thing. Um, yeah, it's so crazy. I'm real happy that, you know, you happen to call in at this particular time. It's excellent. So um, people here, you know, there's a film opening um, here this weekend um, um, about Hurricane Katrina. And uh, I don't know, in the midst of all that you know, you've been preparing for, um, if you you know the uh, the film that I'm speaking of, it's called Trouble the Water, and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, shot by um, a woman from the Ninth Ward. Um, her name is uh, Gosh, look at my notes. I was trying to think of name too. Yeah, and it's really cool. Her middle name is Rivers. Oh, King, do you know her? Yes. uh, Oh, her name is Kimberly. Kimberly Rivers. Roger Mm -hmm. Roberts. Oh, you know you know her, and her husband's name is Scott. Ah, yeah. I haven't seen the film yet. I haven't seen the film yet, but I heard when they screened it here in New Orleans. Ray Nagin was invited, and he left. uh, He left halfway through the film because he was so offended by his portrayal in the film. All they did was just tape him. I mean, what's that? It was it was just footage from his his um, television uh, you know announcements about leaving, et cetera, et cetera. You know, oh, it was yeah. all it was all you know you know um, public domain information. I mean, he said. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, wow. they didn't. I don't think it was a twisted or sordid story. You know, they just shined the light on mm-hmm. on on a clown. You know, like he's a yeah. joke. I mean, that's the the other thing is like what they said to every to residents was don't come unless you have tier one or tier two placards, which is the new system for returning and trying to keep congestion down. And tier one is first responders, emergency workers, 
and then tier two is like business owners. <laughs> you know? yeah. So that's crazy. It's like come back, you know, and and get your businesses up and going, so the people can return. People can return without businesses being open, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, my next caller is calling me on time. So, um, any closing thoughts? Um, what people can do here? Um, I think Common Ground is still the best place to send money um, because um, you know they're not getting any government resources and um, and they definitely need support to help you know with the continuing rebuilding of New Orleans and the Gulf because they actually volunteer and help in Mississippi too. Um, any any um, thing you want to add to that? No, I mean, we have a resource center at 1649 North Robertson, so there's water and chainsaws and stuff through Common Ground. You can um, you can get there, and then uh, some hygiene kits, and then there's also a space open on uh, um, Piety just north of St. Claude, which Common Ground has up and running now. So just get the word out to your people who are coming back. Okay, cool. Any phone number you can uh, give folks who might need to call for more information? Uh, for more information, sure, they can call 504-261-3069. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. All right, Wanda. All power to the people. Okay, you take care. Peace. Thanks, King. You're welcome. Peace. Okay. Talk to you later. Okay. Hello. Hello. You're on the hey. air. Is this Norman? Well, this is Richard Talavera. Oh, Richard. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, is Norman going to call in also? Yes, I believe he is. He, okay. he just sent me this number. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, you're on the air at Wanda's Fixed oh. and just finished <laughs> talking to um, to a couple of folks, um, King and uh, a friend of his, who were letting us know what was happening on the ground in New Orleans and what happened in the Gulf you know, region, Mississippi, this past week on the third anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And they were talking briefly about trouble the water. But I really, really enjoyed, um, you know, the, uh, I guess, the open rehearsal last night of, of <laughs> yes. your amazing, amazing um, work. Um, let's see. Before the Dream, The Mysterious yes. Death and Life of Richard Wright. So um, so why don't you tell us about, about yourself, uh, Richard, and uh, Richard Talavara, and what made you, you know, spend two years researching and developing a piece on Richard Wright for his centennial, the centennial of his birth, which was, by the way, folks, yesterday. It was his 100th birthday party, 100th birthday, and we had a party for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to say, uh, well, um, I suppose to begin with, uh, the the um, the project, uh, the you know, one can research a lot of interesting people. It doesn't necessarily make an interesting play. Uh, but I felt that uh, in reading, uh, you know, uh, while I was just reading, I, I came into um, uh, came to know pretty well the you know the story about Richard Wright and uh, James Baldwin and Chester Himes, and I started thinking, wow, these people really did leave the United States. Um, a lot of people talked about that I know have talked about leaving the United States uh, because of its policies abroad and and different things, but uh, these guys actually did, and so I I found myself more and more curious about the story about. Uh, Richard Wright, James Baldwin in particular, the conflict there. And reading along, I'm like, wow, his 100th anniversary is coming up. And it, it just was just, uh, you know, it's just like the muses were just telling me, hey, you know, let's get going. And then finally uh, got together with uh, Norman G., who uh, who I 
sort of uh, pitched the idea to you, might say, and and he picked up on it, and uh, we proceeded to do ten, actually eleven, uh, readings in libraries uh, in different places throughout the Bay Area of different material, covering Richard Wright from his early Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Chester, Ollie Harrington, and other people, including um, Ralph Ellison, their early days uh, growing up. Then we had them, uh, you know, their first attempts to write, uh, Chester Hines writing in prison. Uh, then later on, the uh, the communist, uh, Depression-era communist uh, period for a lot of them. Again, Ellison and uh, uh, um, Richard Wright. Like you. Mm-hmm. Hey, there you are, Norman. Yeah, yeah, yeah Norman's on the <laughs> line. I, I was trying to figure out a good place to, to <laughs> interrupt you. Yeah, Norman G., uh, are you artistic director of Oakland Public Theater, Norman? I am the artistic director of the Oakland Public Theater, as well as the director of this project. Yeah, yeah. So now you all can talk to each other. <laughs> so I was asking, um, Richie was just explaining to us sort of, you know, the impetus for, you know, devoting two years of his life to this project, you know, um, with regards to, you know, scholarship. And and then he was telling us about, you know, the ten readings that you had throughout the San Francisco Bay Area um, at a variety of venues, the, o- the San Francisco Main Library, um, the place over on Piedmont, um, what's it called? Chapel of the Chimes? Oh, yeah, Chapel of the Chimes. Yeah, yeah Oakland the Main uh, Oakland Main Library. We, I did a couple of different branches of the Oakland Library okay. uh, and the community centers. We we were all over the place. Uh, Teatro de la Esperanza, which is where we'll take the show uh, the last week of September, we'll move to San Francisco. Um, so, yeah, we, we took these readings everywhere we could um, because we wanted to get the word out, and we also wanted to work with this material. I mean, Richard, when he proposed the idea to me, he, he said he wanted to draw from their words, the words of these writers, mm-hmm. and create a sense of dialogue because they each write about these various things that were happening to them as a group or to individuals. Um, they write about it, so you get the different writers' perspectives, and sometimes it really creates a wonderful sense of dialogue with these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I really loved um, about the piece, um, uh, Richard, was the yes. way you, you – oh, actually, um, maybe you should tell people that all of the words are those of right. You know? Exactly. Uh, yeah, so that's real important. <laughs> Yeah, that was the thing, too, was that we call it a literary mosaic. Of, uh, and so we take uh, the words of Wright, the words of Baldwin, and they're actually talking to each other. Or, you know, there are accounts that uh, their account of a certain event or, or uh, the things that they're going through. Uh, Richard Wright never wrote an a autobiography, but a lot of his work and the work of Hines and, and, uh, was uh, autobiographical. In the case of James Baldwin, he was very good about talking about <laughs> what he was thinking. <laughs> and so, it, you know, to kind of coordinate all that, and, and including uh, biographers who are featured as sort of a Greek chorus and uh, tend to uh, have different opinions about uh, history, mm-hmm. which we include as well. Yeah, yeah. What I really enjoyed um, was the the inclusion of the haiku poems, particularly in the second part, um, it's just, you know, they just it's just such a lovely transition, the way you just, I mean, and I think uh, his daughter says, you know, the, uh, the 
character that who plays the character, his daughter, says that I think he wrote four thousand or something like that. And right. one of the lines was that they were hanging in the apartment like you know, like on a clothesline kind of thing. Right. You know, he had so many and he was just right he had his carried his notebook all over the place and he just was writing them all the time. It's almost like a meditation. That's what um I don't know, was that his daughter's line? I I don't remember. Yes, she does say okay. that. Um okay. yeah, it was um it was strange that when Richard Wright left America, he was known as a novelist, and he got to Europe and he started writing about world politics and you know speaking out. And so it's kind of interesting that at the end of his life, suddenly he his artistic re I don't know reestablished or just he found a new voice. He started writing all these Japanese poems, these little tiny Japanese poems. And one of the things for us that was fascinating was you could see various aspects of his life reflected in the poem, so we knew that we wanted to make that an element in the play. Right, yeah, and I was wondering, because I, after I, I saw the play last night, I thought, okay, I need to go out and get this collection of, of poetry, and I was wondering, <laughs> is is it published, or is it something that you all had to get, you know, as... as no, it is published. Um, okay. We, we, had to, we had to run around a little bit to find it, but um, it's published. It's, you can find copies in some libraries. Um, yeah, he sent it off to his publisher, and I think they must have been really kind of freaked out to get this collection of Japanese poems from this man who's known as a Negro author. You know, he writes Native Son, this this powerful story of murder and, um, you know, what it is to be on the south side of Chicago. That's what he becomes known for. And then he writes about being in Mississippi, you know, where he grew up. Um, so people kind of identified him as this is who he is. They, you know, he was sort of a black Faulkner, or that was the image that people had of him. So to come out of nowhere with these poems, I'm sure his publisher just sort of took it and said, okay, well, we'll put this on the shelf for right now. <laughs> exactly. But um, eventually, after he died, they went ahead and published it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they are yeah. beautiful. Yes, they really are. I mean, they're so visual also. I mean, everyone you could actually see what you know he's saying and then the way you end it oh my goodness Richard it's so beautiful yeah it, I, and then I, the way he has this, the way he's standing there I mean Norman I think that's you the way he's standing there with his arms outstretched that's probably mm-hmm. you because that's a director or a thing but right. Richard the writing is just so lovely particularly the the last part you know the poetry mm-hmm. but just sort of what you emphasize in the end it's just wow it's just really yeah. lovely I, yeah I was I was I I <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting there. I'm moved, and and I really, I really thought it was uh, great. Of course, again, all of the words are not uh, are from them. I, you know, I, I, I think we there's one <laughs> sentence that we paraphrased, uh, you know. Um, but other than that, it's all their words. So it is a, it's like I say, it's a literary mosaic, and uh, and it was very uh, interesting to write that way or to create that way, and uh, using uh, using parts of uh, Different different sources at different yeah. times, uh, and, and it seemed to turn out really well. And I, I was moved myself, and I I know the play. <laughs> it's right. like wow, you know, the actors are just, I think, doing a great job at you know telling the story. And I was just really pleased with that work and Norman's work as a director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, and I have to admit that that last <laughs> image is an image that Richard from, you know, once we got the haikus and we started reading them, we were just like, oh, these, there's just some beautiful images in here, so we want to mm-hmm. use it, and especially as a counterpoint to the last scene where you're once again getting 
somebody's description of this encounter that is fairly famous between Richard Wright and James Baldwin, and we took different people's accounts of it, you know, people's descriptions, people who were there, uh, people writing about each of their lives, you know, trying to discuss what it was that happened between them. And so in sort of a Rashomon way, we showed you different aspects of this ver of this uh, story, and coming back to it again in the end with yet another version of it, you know, it just felt like it was a good way to, to kind of give you a sense of where it was, what it was that was going on between them, and, and that on some level we're all human, we all have our struggles and places that we don't get along, and yet at the same time there's a something that makes us all human, something that we share, and that was the thing that they were able to, they always shared a love of writing, they always shared a love of trying to speak the truth. They, there was a shared truth that they all had, these writers, and even though they had personal struggles, they never lost sight of that, that desire to to communicate and that appreciation that this other person is trying to tell the same story. Right. Let me um, interrupt real quickly and let people know where they can see this wonderful play because you're not going to be around that long. I mean, a month is good. Right. I mean, it's very, very good. And I certainly encourage people to go back more than once because it's such a rich piece. You know, you want to, like, okay, you might focus on Richard Wright the first time, but the next time you might want to follow Chester Himes, Himes as the character, you know, Richard Wright's good friend. Or you might want to follow the Baldwin character, you know, because he – his relationship and uh, Richard Wright's relationship was real contentious, um, although, you know, there is some resolution there. So Before the Dream, The Mysterious Death and Life of Richard Wright, written by Richard uh, Talavera and directed by Norman G., is uh, running from September 4th through October 5th, Thursdays through Saturdays at 8 p.m., and Sunday matinees at 5 p.m. at the uh, at the Noodle Factory Performing Noodle Arts Factory. Center. Right. Noodle? It's not Noodle? Yeah. It is Noodle Factory Performing Arts Center, yes. Yeah, in West Oakland, and we got lost. So um, <laughs> it says that it's on 26th Street, but it's really on Union. That's how you go in. <laughs> so 26th is the cross street, but it's really on Union, and it's enclosed in fencing. Is that going to stay up there, the fence part? Uh, the fencing, they are still finishing construction on the building, so they they put an extra effort through to, to get the performing arts space done. But uh, they're still working on the building. Okay, yeah, so it looks like it's not done. You think, oh, man, this is not the theater. So um, I know that they're going to put balloons and they're going to have some kind of butcher paper on the fence. You know, this is the spot because it's in the hood. And people who are in the hood, you can actually uh, be the guests of the uh, Oakland Public Theater. You just have to call them and let them know you want tickets. But tickets are Right, we, we're, we're <laughs> making a, a, a select number of tickets available for people in that area code. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the area code is 94607, just in case you don't know it, yes. and it's in Oakland. And so, Norman, since you're talking, why don't you tell us um, the phone number people can call or email address? Uh, the phone number is 510-534-9529, or they can send us an email at oaklandpublic at gmail.com. Yeah, your, your website has got a really interesting URL. Um, I, I get the last part, but I don't get the first part. But it's H. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Go ahead. You can do it. Oh, the uh, the uh, so to get to the website, it's X R 
I always get this messed up. Is it X L R? I can do it. I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. I'll, I'll do it. Um, sure. <laughs> it's X R like Richard L dot U S slash forward slash O P T W R I G H T. So it's X R L dot U S forward slash O P T W R I G H T. And if you check out WandasPix.com, it'll all be there. And you can also look at you know the uh, the blog talk radio site, and it'll be there also. And so, uh, once again, it continues through October 5th at the uh, Noodle Factory Performing Arts Center. Um, Well, the last two weeks will be in San Francisco. Oh, okay, the last two weeks in San Francisco, and there's no address for that part. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's... um, Not not on my card. So I don't don't uh, know what that means. It's 2940-16th Street. It's just above the uh, URL, just above the ticket price. That's the address, 2940-16th Street, um, just off Mission. It's uh, it's in the same building as Theater Rhinoceros. Oh, okay. And and that's uh, that's easy to get to from BART. You can do public transportation, people. Get off of 16th Street and walk over. Yeah, okay. one block. Oh, yeah. One block. Well, that's great. Oh, that's really convenient. Oh, that's excellent. So um, I wanted to ask you, Richard, um, we have a, a few more minutes to mm-hmm. talk about I really, really love, it's a mystery. I mean, that is so cool. And um, so I want you to talk about the mystery because you sort of leave his his demise or his death sort of questionable, like did he really die from natural causes or was it something else? And and then before I let you answer that, I'm going to sort of like uh, – there's some lines I really like, and I'm gonna, I am going I took some notes oh, and cool. I, wanted to, I wanted to read them to you, some I really liked. Um, okay. The sons must slay their fathers, and this mm-hmm. is what uh, James Baldwin is saying to Richard Wright, and, you, and it, it comes back a couple of times. Yeah. And then, um, let's see, uh, let's see, uh, where is it? Oh, um, something, um, to get ahead, um, Americans walk, walk on each mm-hmm. other. Yeah, um, like yeah and I, and I, and that looked like that hurt Wright's feelings when, when Baldwin said that. That Baldwin Wright thing was real intense. And then the CIA, um, was in, their interest in Richard Wright, and um, something was mentioned about Nkrumah, what might have been the reason why, and mm-hmm. his connections to Algiers. And then uh, any brother who isn't paranoid is in serious trouble. That was really cool. <laughs> yeah. And then I love his whole talk with the uh, the African brother. I think he was from Nigeria yes. about yes. about God and, yes. and how he didn't say he was an atheist. He just said he didn't know the answer to the question. I thought that was so cool. Yes. Yeah, Richard Wright always, always was careful in his positioning, you know, of his beliefs. Mostly because he felt like when people ask a question, they already know what answer they want, mm-hmm. and so he wanted to be clear that his answer wasn't their answer. But he might not have an answer that he could, you know, make clear to them. But he just wanted them to know he wasn't like the whole communist thing. He wasn't for communism. He wasn't against communism. Um, religion. He said he just never understood it. So it wasn't like he felt like he was at war with God. He didn't understand God. So he felt like people who believed in God were always trying to force him into some box that he didn't want to be in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and with the play actually picks up Richard Wright at uh, not in his you know most successful time of his life. Uh, he is having uh, you know uh, uh, the surveillance by the CIA, by, you know, State Department. There's all of this pressure on a political level, on a personal level. He's also experiencing, uh, you know, rivalry between him and maybe other writers. 
I wanted, we caught him, we're catching him more at a, a later time of his life, a 50s crisis time of his life, you might say. Um, and uh, I, I kind of related to that, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I, I was saying, you know, I, I think a lot of people, you know, can relate to that, you know, coming to a place in your life where you're, you know, a little older and people have put you on this kind of, uh, give you this kind of status, but at the same time you, you're struggling just to stay, you know, stay ahead. So I, I wanted to capture that, that period of time in his life. And so, um, you know, I, I was very happy that we were able to, to bring, bring that kind of a light into it, not, not you know, a vulnerable person, a person mm -hmm. with problems, you know. So that worked out very well. Yeah. Well, and well, at the time in his life, people said he was paranoid. But as all these records are being released, Freedom of Information Act, um, England has records on him that will not be released for like another 60 years, something like that. Right, they said 100 uh, years, that it was going to be 100 years before right. certain things were available. So is that what you're speaking yeah. of? Yeah, that's right. Wow. They just, they, because he was trying to get a passport, a permanent visa, and they wouldn't give it to him, and they wouldn't explain why. And you cannot find out for another 60 years, you cannot find out what was going on with that. It's just. You know, they refused to say, and there was, because he was talking to these political leaders around the world, mm -hmm. there were governments that were afraid of him, and so they were surveilling him, and all these records are coming out now, and even now, all the biographers write about, if you go to look at the records, there are places that are still blacked out. There's information that they still don't want to release wow. about a man who really was nothing more than a writer. And uh, my next guest is on, but before we close, I wanted um, you to mention um, Richard because I didn't catch all their names. Yes. But you mentioned that uh, with regards to that, you know, that perhaps Richard Wright, um, you know, his death was not, you know, of natural causes because you know mm -hmm. he was cremated, so they couldn't do an autopsy, no, and it happened no. so fast people couldn't even come and, and say goodbye. You mentioned other other writers that died mysteriously, like uh, like C.L. C.L.R. James or well, no, James? Uh, we were talking mostly about uh, uh, Frantz Fanon and okay. uh, Richard Wright and even uh, uh, George Padmore, who was, who the, you know they these these guys in particular dying, uh, you know, in in pretty rapid succession and and uh, and uh, at a pretty young age and um, and similar circumstances. Right. So uh, there, there, there's uh, there there's a lot of uh, Suspicious uh, situations that have happened around that time. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I thought, you know, um, as we go out, if each one of you could share uh, one of the haikus that come to mind easily. Oh. <laughs> That's Sorry, so I funny because I, 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 I don't, I, I can't really do that. Oh, you Norman? Can? Oh, Norman, you have a couple. Because remember, Norman, you did something in, in February at the library, so you might have a few, right? Have a couple. Um. Well, I can. I could pull one from the beginning of the play because I happen okay. to have a copy of it sitting here. <laughs> oh, and, and I love this. Um, in the cathedral, in a lamp of rosy light, clouds of lazy flies. Yeah. Beautiful picture. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, uh, Norman and Richard. And remember, tonight at the Noodle Factory, um, Union at 26th Street in West Oakland, 8 p.m. If you want to catch the, uh, is it still in previews and opens tomorrow? It is. It's in previews still, yes. Okay, yeah. So the tickets might be less expensive, because uh, I noticed that you have on the um, on the uh, 
the little program sheet that if if a person comes back with this um, the sheet, then you bring a person that pays and you get in free. Is that continuing tonight? So, yeah, that's continuing tonight. It's part of our preview process. We feel like that's part of the process of getting the play ready is bringing an audience in. So if you get to see it as it's still developing, then we feel like you should come back. You should have a chance to come back and see it once we've got everything in place. So oh, that's cool. That'll be tomorrow. All right, well, thank you so much, and good luck. And I'm going to come back and bring my classes. Oh, oh great. great. Thank you, Wanda. Okay, sure. You take care. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, Chris. This Hello? is Tayo. Oh, Tayo. Oh, super. Okay, I didn't recognize your phone number. Excellent. Um, so uh, Tayo is going to be talking about um, Paul Robeson. Did you get a chance to hear um, a little bit of what we talked about with regards to Richard Wright? Uh-oh. Did I lose him? Oh, my God. I hung up. Oh, my goodness. Call me back, Tayo. <laughs> oh, shoot. I hung up on him accidentally. So in the meantime, oh, there he is, calling me back. Let's see. Hello. Hi, this is Chris. I just hung up on Tayo accidentally. Oh no. Can you <laughs> I'm call sure him he's back? gonna call. Uh, no, I'm sure he's gonna. Oh, there he is. Here he is. Let me answer again. <laughs> oh, Tayo, sorry, I hung up on you accidentally. <laughs> That's quite all right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just learning how to like click these icons really quickly. Um. So did you get a chance to hear um, any of the conversation with Norman G. and Richard uh, Talavera? Yeah. Do you, do, you know, do you know the, um, that, that particular company, Oakland Public Theater? No, I don't. I okay, don't. yeah. Um, yeah, I have to introduce you all because you're both doing yeah. really, really good work. Um, so, really um, yeah. Have we ever met? No, we haven't, but we've oh. exchanged emails okay, um, yeah, wh- when I was here in April. Uh, you, I think you tried to. You, I think you listed me in your, on your site or, or in your paper or something. Yes, I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to be doing um, an encore production of Call Mr. Robeson, a play with songs written and performed by you in San Francisco, beginning tonight for the weekend, right? Tonight, uh, the fifth. Which is it sold out? <laughs> and it's tonight is sold out. Yeah. Ah, yeah. So you all are out of luck. Um, but tomorrow's night and Sunday's night, right? That's right. Yes. Oh, good. Yes, yeah, a benefit tonight for Mumia Abu Jamal, and joining Tayo on the uh, on the line is um, is Chris, and he's going to uh, talk about um, the Labor Action Committee uh, in support of um, Mumia Abu Jamal. So, Tayo, why don't you talk um, for the uh, about the play that you put together called called Mr. Robeson, and sort of what was the genesis for um, for the production, and. Um, and Chris, you can chime in whenever you like with regards to, um, you know, the uh, the benefit uh, that you all are um, hosting together. All right, thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to, to thank Tayo for uh, donating this performance tonight to the uh, benefit of Mumia Abu Jamal's uh, Legal Defense Fund. Because uh, it's an honor. I mean, I I only found out about Mumia. I think I read something about him about a year ago in a in a paper in England, uh, a very socialist paper, which doesn't get much uh, uh, circulation. And then uh, when I was coming, people here, um, Jack Heyman in particular, suggested that I might uh, donate one performance uh, to Mumia, and I thought, wonderful, that's a great idea. I'd love to do it. It's the sort of thing Paul Robeson would have done in his time. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Definitely. That's right. And uh, about the play, um, I think 
summer solstice 1995 was when it all started. I was uh, singing in uh, Liverpool, where I live, at, uh, at, uh, at an event one early morning. And I remember the song, one of the songs I sang was My Lord of the Morning, a spiritual. And the woman came up to me afterwards and said, do you sing Paul Robeson songs? And uh, my answer at the time was, I, I, I think I may have heard the name, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't do any Paul Robeson. Uh, about two months after that, I found his biography and read it, and just it just blew my mind that there was such an incredible guy uh, who'd, who'd been so talented, so... Uh, strong in his conviction, so popular, and yet um, ready to sacrifice his wealth, his popularity for the principles that he believed in, which was uh, basically uh, civil rights for all people, African Americans, African Indians, people under colonial uh, subjugation, and uh, for being so uh, progressive in his time, we're talking about the 1930s and 40s and 50s, he really suffered as much as anybody else uh, other than straightforward death uh, under McCarthy and uh, CIA and, and the authorities. And so when I found out about this guy, I was quite amazed that I didn't know anything about him, that his story had been uh, buried more or less, and I decided that, well, this story has to be told. <coughs> and... Uh, 13 years later, here we are. Wow. That's amazing. 13 years later. Yeah. 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 So um, so your, your home is in Liverpool? Is it still in Liverpool? It is. That's where I live. I actually come from Nigeria. You may be able to hear a bit of an accent in my voice. Oh, well, um, I was looking at the name, too. <laughs> right, yeah. So, yeah, and uh, Paul Robeson, uh, it's, it's quite interesting that Paul, reading Paul Robeson's life, how much he, he, how interested he was in reminding people that Africa was a great civilization before, uh, the, you know, the transatlantic slave trade, and that we've forgotten about this, and we have a culture and history to be proud of. Now, this is an African American who was dead, teaching me about pride in my being African. I, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's almost shameful for me to admit that I was so ignorant about that sort of thing beforehand. But, uh, you know, it was a very timely gift uh, to me from Paul Robeson, and uh, I think it's a gift that I, would, I just want to share with everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, did you move to uh, Liverpool as an adult? I moved, yes, I, I moved there in 1989 to uh, finish my studies in architecture. I'm actually an architect in Liverpool. Really? Uh, I, work, I work for myself, so I decide to take time off whenever I like to perform the play, wow. wherever it takes me. Oh, so this is like, you know, the music is your passion, but the way you support your passion is through your, your um, architecture work, which is, which is also art. It is, it is art, and it yeah. is, actually, I mean, it's, and the kind of architecture or the kind of buildings that I am involved in are, or I try to be involved in, uh, you know, social buildings, you know, uh, housing, uh, social housing, and uh, offices for voluntary organizations, I think you call it not-for-profit here. For real? Oh, uh, nice. That's right. Yeah. 
And are you sort of, you know, trying to use, um, you know, sustainable kind of use kind of models in the development? I, <laughs> yes, trying is a, is the right word, but not succeeding because uh, <laughs> unfortunately uh, that kind of stuff needs a lot of support from government, from uh, mm -hmm. local authorities and banks and so on. And uh, it's not easy to come uh, to mm -hmm. come by. So I've, I've had a few projects which have uh, not seen the light of day. But uh, I keep dreaming, and uh, one day it will happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, why don't you um, give us some background on Mumia Abu-Jamal's case and, and the Labor Action Committee to free Mumia Abu-Jamal? Uh, yes, I'd love to. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that this play uh, tonight called Mr. Robeson is really a wonderful play. I, I had the uh, privilege of seeing it the last time Tayo was in town. I, I think it was April, Tayo? April the 10th, the day after Paul Robeson's uh, 110th anniversary. Right, right. It's, right. Uh, it's really a wonderful play, and the, the music is excellent. And, and Tayo even sounds uh, a little bit like uh, Paul Robeson when he sings. Oh, that's um, awesome. <laughs> and I think, the, <laughs> I think the association between Robeson and Mumia Abu-Jamal, who's perhaps America's foremost political prisoner at this time, is, uh, is a wonderful one. I mean, they're both black revolutionaries. Uh, they were both victimized by a very reactionary and imperialist uh, government. Uh, in Mumia's case, uh, he was framed up for the shooting of a police officer, but the real crime in, in the incident uh, wasn't just that a police officer was killed, but that Mumia was immediately framed up by the police because he was one of their chief critics. Uh, he exposed, he was a radio uh, commentator at the time. He was a former member of the Black Panther Party, and he was always already targeted by the government for that. And uh, <clears throat> he was then a radio commentator when this crime happened in 1981. And uh, he had exposed these uh, vicious police crackdown on a, a local uh, black sort of community group called Moo. Right. And uh, the police really had it in for him. So it was kind of an accident that he was on. This. He was driving a, a taxi late at night, and that's why he was there on the on the scene where the shooting happened. And it, the cops framed him up immediately for this. And the courts and the politicians have uh, continued this crime because for the ruling class that we have in this country, the, for the state, uh, you know, the worst thing you can be is a black revolutionary. And they've, uh, <laughs> they've persecuted many of them, and uh, Mumia is perhaps the latest. Right, yeah. And then Mumia, you know, he has several books out, right? Oh, yes. Uh, he's written uh, several books, um, and uh, there's also a book about him by uh, Terry Disson called On a Moon. Mm -hmm. uh, and Mumia is known, or was known, and still is known, as the voice of the voiceless uh, because he's an um, excellent radio commentator, a comment on, uh, and written commentator, comments on all sorts of uh, of issues. I'm just looking at the, the list of his commentaries just for 2008, and it's too long to fit on my whole computer screen. He, he does these commentaries, and then he uh, records them over the phone uh, with an organization called Prison Radio, and there then these commentaries are then played on uh, <coughs> 
on radio, but he's so controversial. They're played mainly on Pacifica radio stations, you know, KPFA and others. And he's so controversial, though, that <clears throat> his commentaries were censored off of uh, NPR, National Public Radio, uh, under pressure from Congress because um, <clears throat> they didn't want this alleged cop killer to, to uh, get the airtime. But the, the real crime uh, around Omiya is that it's so obvious that he's innocent, and yet the courts continue to violate even their own uh, precedents uh, and uh, uh, continue to persecute him and keep him in the, on death row. He's been there for over 25 years, over a quarter of a century, for a crime he didn't commit. Right. Let's tell our listeners uh, where the play is taking place. Um, I have here that... Um, at 5 p.m. tonight at the Phoenix Theater, 414 Mason Street, 6th floor in San Francisco, um, is the uh, the benefit. And it's pay what you can, $5 minimum, to to uh, benefit Mumia Bujamal. And for information, you can call 1-800-838-3006. And you can also visit the website, call MR. Robeson, R-O-B-E-S-O-N dot com. Call M-R-Robeson dot com. Um, also this evening, um, aren't there going to be some people doing like report backs or something, Chris? Like what's going on with the case and things like that? Oh, yes. The um, uh, Mumia's uh, uh, chief lawyer, Robert R. Bryan of San Francisco, <coughs> has written a letter uh, about this which quotes uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal he says, Mumia has asked that I share with you his deep feelings about Paul Robeson. And then in this letter, there's a, uh, a, a quote from Mumia in which he also touts the Robeson's wonderful autobiography, Here I Stand, which Tayo was just talking about. But anyway, uh, Robert Bryan will be uh, speaking tonight after the performance. Mm -hmm. uh, he'll give a little uh, update. The current status of the case is that He's trying to get the Mumia's uh, case, Mumia's appeal to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's kind of at the end of a, a long round of appeals. And then I'll be saying something about uh, urging people to uh, donate to Mumia's legal defense. And I'd like to say now, if anyone listening who is coming tonight to the show, uh, please bring your checkbooks because uh, Mumia's legal defense has a tough job ahead of it, and they, they have to uh, try to get into the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, <clears throat> they do need money. And uh, you can't donate by, as you know, if you've already called up and gotten a ticket for tonight, the way their ticket company is set up, all you can do is, is pay $5. You can't change the amount. So the donations to movie as legal defense are going to have to take place after the after the show at, on, on the scene, and uh, we we'll hope everyone will uh, bring their checkbooks and uh, donate generously to that. Yeah. I would I would say this is how I would say that yeah. um, people need to know. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it is sold out tonight. So if people do want to donate, there is a website. There's a free there's a free Mumia website. Is that right, Chris? Well, I can, can I can give you the the information for donating. Yes, okay. there are several websites about Mumia, but here's the main um, information for donating to Mumia's legal defense. That is, you make your check out to 
National Lawyers Guild Foundation. National Lawyers Guild Foundation. And you earmark the check for Mumia Abu Jamal because the foundation, you know, covers lots of cases, and so they'll want to know which case you're donating to. And <clears throat> all these funds go, of course, to the lawyers, to the legal defense uh, fund. And then you send it to the Committee to Save Mumia Abu Jamal, uh, P.O. Box 2012, New York, New York, 10159. That's Committee to Save Mumia Abu Jamal, P.O. Box 2012, New York City, 10159. And that's how uh, money is, is directed directly to Mumia's legal defense. Yeah, and if you want to find out more about the Labor Action Committee, they have a website, laboractionmumia.org. Uh, laboractionmumia.org, that's correct. Yeah. It, it's not a really up-to-date uh, site, but it has a huge amount of factual evidence, including legal documents, some of which um, never really made it into court, uh, which is, you know, is a treasure trove of information which proves all you really have to do is read a little of it, and you realize that it's incredibly obvious that Mumia is completely innocent of this crime. Yeah. Well, we have uh, a few minutes left, and I wanted to let um, um, Tayo um, have an opportunity to um, to share, perhaps, uh, since I don't have any music, um, you could talk about your uh, accompanist, accompaniment, accompanist, accompanist. Uh, Richard Thompson, and also uh, maybe share... You know, some of your favorite songs, um, you know, I like Old Man River, particularly because Paul Robeson changed it, you know, changed that last line to make it more uplifting for our people. And uh, and, and also, you know, maybe you might want to share a monologue or something, give people a taste of what they're going to hear, you know, on Saturday, Friday, today, or Saturday or Sunday. And I want to remind people that uh, Call Mr. Robeson is at the Phoenix Theater, 414 Mason Street, 6th floor, San Francisco, and... Uh, it's tonight, Saturday and Sunday. Sunday is a matinee at 5 p.m. Oh, no, actually, it's 5 p.m. every night, right? Yeah, they're all 5 p.m. 5 p.m., yeah. and, then, and then on Saturday and Sunday, the tickets are $20 and $15. So, um, so Tayo, why don't you give us a little teaser? A little teaser. Um, yeah. There's this occasion where Paul Robeson, uh, where he had, um, he had his passport uh, taken off him, because he was so outspoken, he couldn't even leave America. They wouldn't let him go into Canada. So he goes to the border and sings across the border to 25,000, 30,000 people. And uh, he, make, he makes this speech. Um, why do they take my passport away? They said that I've been struggling for the independence of the colonial peoples of Africa and that that is meddling in the foreign affairs of the United States government. Now that's too bad, because I'm going to have to continue to struggle. And I want everybody in the range of my voice to hear, official or otherwise, that there is no force on earth that will make me go backward one thousandth part of one little inch. And now, comrades, brothers and sisters, Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. 
Joe Hill ain't dead, he says to me. Joe Hill ain't never died. Where workers strike and organize, Joe Hill is at their side. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Oh, wow. That is lovely. That's wonderful. And you do sound like him. Thank you, especially, oh, especially at this time of the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Thank okay. You. Well, thank you so much, and good luck tonight on the fundraiser. And maybe you can call me back, Chris, and let me know what happens, so we can let our audience know how much money was raised. And I, you know, you know, we can all, you can always use more oh, money. Yeah, certainly will do. Should I call back in the next time you're on, or when would that? Yeah, be? yeah, you can, you can call me back next time we're on, or you can call, you can email me. We can, you know, make it more formalized. All right, great. <laughs> well, thanks for having us on. Sure, and I look forward to meeting you, Tayo, um, on Sunday when I come see the play. That's right. I look forward to that. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Morning, Wanda. Oh, hey. Good morning, Coleman. How are you? Uh-oh. Did I hang up? Oh, no. Hello? 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 How am I sitting? Oh. Hello? Oh, I don't hear him anymore. Oh, my gosh. Hello? Oh, shoot. I lost my caller. I can't hear him anymore. That's kind of weird. Um, that's really strange. Um, hmm. Oh, there he is. Okay. So Hello? I was cut off for some reason. How you doing? Oh, fine. I've got like two nine one sevens, um, and I don't know what happened. But anyway, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you called <laughs> me back. It's <laughs> 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 like, okay, here, you know, trying to get this. Being an engineer and also being, you know, the hostess is like, oh, my God, I wish I had an engineer here. It would be so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. You'll, you'll have that very soon, right? You'll, you'll have I, I, soon. Yeah, I'm trying to. This is only my second show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so lovely seeing you again. Um, I'm so happy you brought back, you know, your show for us, those who missed it in particular and those who just love it, um, you know, A Boy and His Soul. Thank um, you. Yeah, at a... Uh, at Thick Descriptions um, Thick House, and you're going to be there for another week. So people yeah, one more week, like, yeah. Hurry over there and catch it. So actually, I jotted down some questions for you because you are one of my favorite, favorite actors. Oh, uh, thank you. I am like you. a true fan. Oh, those thank you don't know Coleman, oh, my goodness. He is just, everything he touches is great. Oh, If you see his name, you. you know it's going to be fabulous. I mean, you were the one who's the reason why I wanted to see Passing Strange. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't know it was going to get the Obi and be a movie and all that kind of great stuff. It's like Coleman's in it. It's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So, thank um, you. So tell me about um, about your um, your show. Um, you know, I just, uh, you know, you wrote in sort of in the program that you, I believe we are in a state of great change in the world. I was always taught that in order to move forward, you have to take a great glance backwards. This is my glance, and I invite you to have your glance with me tonight. Soul music can take us home. But the thing that really stayed with me was that your mother kept on saying to keep a song in your heart. And I wonder if you could talk about what that's meant to you artistically as you have continued to grow as an artist and in your career. 
I, I think that what that, that phrase means to me is that, um, like, no matter what trials and tribulations you go through, I think even being on, I think the fringes, the fringes, you know, being an artist, um, you know, like like me, I'm, you know, I'm coming out of boy in the city, West Philadelphia, and the idea of being an artist was never an option. You know, it was an option to, uh, at least in the community, it was more about, hey, get out of school, get a good job, you know, go to college, get a good job, and, you know, give back to your community, et cetera. And uh, the idea of being an artist um, never entered my mind. Um, but that was something that I think that my mother always nurtured within our, our kids. And, um, and to, to take risks and, and take the risks that are not, um, that, that are very daring and not really usually financially feasible. So, <laughs> so, um, and so I think it was, it was more about, you know, the, the phrase of uh, keep a song in your heart. Um, I think, I think that's something that my mother has always done in terms of what that means to her, which is, um, you know, keeping, staying true to yourself, uh, keeping your family in your heart, keeping your, the truth of your soul, you know, being true to yourself. I think just being really true to yourself, and you will find your way. So I think that's what that song, you know, keeping that song in your heart. I mean, because I feel like you know everybody. I think every every person I've met who, who, who I meet, who have any sort of depth of character or, um, they they have a song in their heart. People who say they don't like music, they really worry me. Like you know, people who don't really have a favorite song, really, you know. Or it's very interesting to find that you know what a person's favorite song is, because I really think it tells a whole lot about, about the person, about their, about their character. And I think, um, so I think, uh, I don't know, I feel like I've been keeping a song in my heart for many years, you know, and, I, and, hopefully, and I think I'll always keep one, um, you know, through life's changes, through, uh, and that's what, I believe that we are truly in a state of, you know, change and grace in this world, because, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're positioned in many ways, so many things to happen. I'm so excited about the future, like the idea that we have, you know, Obama running, the, you know what I mean? I think it's so, it, it's just so, it's so incredible. I think, uh, you know, I know that our grandparents and our parents maybe never thought they would see something like that in their lifetime. And I think that, you know, it's so, it, it's so amazing. And uh, I think the songs that we're singing now are songs of our grandparents, our great-grandparents and our great-greats. And that song's in my heart. And I feel like, you know, yeah, and I feel like this. I feel like you know, hey, we can do anything now, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That, that 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 and that question turns into a, an answer for something else, and then a something else. Sorry about that. I just trailed on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's sort of the way your 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 story flows too. Um, you know, without intermission, and you're just you know putting on these various characters. You know, like your mother yeah. and your father and your sister and your big brother, and then yeah. your little brother in the end, and. <laughs> Uh, you know, you say, okay, we're gonna do another story, and we, you know, bring him in. But you know, he's the one that put the, you know, you know, put the music on the soundtrack for you, so you could ride back to New York and have some music, yeah. you know, of some of your favorite tunes, you know, that yeah. you, you know, spend on the yeah. uh, on the vinyl when you were younger. Um, and your parents, oh my goodness, they just sound so lovely. Uh, particularly, oh, you know, the love that you know when when you know when you uh, I don't know if I should tell people what happened. So you know, you know, when you share something really important about your life with them. And 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 it's like you know you're like really scared and and you don't know you like you know perspiring and sweating and like your brother's cool and your sister's cool and and then yeah. your mother and father is like it's just, and but what they say is like it's just it's every, I mean I, I was crying you know I was like oh my god this oh really oh, yeah. oh you know it's it's something and you know because we talked about that before Wanda how because I think how important it was for me to tell 
a story like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of it, it, it's many stories, but you know, it's definitely a coming of age story yeah. uh, for a young man going into manhood and dealing with his, whatever his own personal challenges are. But also, I thought it was a, uh, a, a story about an inner city family with so much love. Um, you know, they may not have much of anything, but they have a lot of love. And I feel like in, in theater, I never saw many stories like that. And I wanted to add this to to the canon. You know, I wanted to add this story of inner city life that I think people don't usually, what they, I think the world doesn't seem like, they don't feel that it exists. I remember one, one critic actually challenged me, actually, and said, um, wow, this story doesn't sound, you know, she didn't think the story was true to form, just on, based on what her research was about inner city and growing up as an African-American man. And I was like, are you kidding me? You're going to, like, doubt my own experience? This is the reason why we have theater, is to add stories. And um, and I think it was very important for me to add the story about about unconditional love. Um, and I think that's what I, I have received in my life, is unconditional love from my fa- like my entire family. And um, and so, you know, with that glance backwards, I wanted to, you know, look at how did that happen and how did that come about and what what lessons were I taught and why was I and why am I who I am today um, and why do I have the values that I have as a person? You know, why am I as open in the world as a human being um, and why am I as, as, as spiritual as I am? I'm not, I'm not a religious person. I, I came from a very... You know, my, my grandparents are both um, pastors of Baptist churches, but my mother instilled in me a sense of spirituality and for me to seek and have my own. But also she she taught me to seek and have my own in, in many ways in my life, Cre- you know, creatively, uh, whether, whether it's sexually, uh, you, you name it. But I really, you know, I think, you know, when you're in your, um, this is the play that I wrote, I believe, from my 30s, and really about truly become, you know, becoming a man and uh, finding out your place in the world. Uh, as your parents get older and as there's so many transitions in your life. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I think it's really about, play truly is, someone asked me, well, what is it really about? And I said, I think it's just about love. It's about love of love and getting in touch with your soul and your spirit. And uh, and soul music is the catalyst. It's the, it's the jump off. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, you know, soul, S-O-U-L, soul music. I mean, it was called soul music for a reason, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, absolutely. I mean, there's no other music that I can think of that was ever called soul music. I mean, just like having Soul Train as a show that we watch, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm like, wow. I mean, and then, you know, so it resonates on a lot of levels, you know, philosophically. You know, yeah. soul music, you know, the music of like the, what is it, the 60s, 70s? Yeah, yeah. Or something, you know, that the music where the lyrics are like, they just like resonated with what's going on in your life so well. Absolutely, <laughs> they, they, yeah, they truly did. And it's funny because you know, as as I, as I get older, you know, I'm in my late thirties, and I, I think the music that that always touches me the most is music that really just has like such meaning. And you know, mm-hmm. I'm not into like you know, a, a synthesized sound or just uh, you know something. You know, I can get you know, the people who I love now, people you know, like Mary J. You know, because I think they are really they go back to the roots of like what this music's all about and has been. You know, it's yeah. really about, you know, telling stories and really getting in touch with who you are and really hopefully helping you find a, a, a way a way out of a situation or a way into a situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. definitely, you know, having all of you in it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's great. So, um, did, I'm trying to think, I, I'm not sure about the chronology, but did your parents, were they alive when you finished this? Or had they yes, you, you know, yes, oh. yes. Uh, in, two, in, two, well, in 2005, 
Okay. My parents, like my mom, my pops, my aunts, and family were all alive and living and well. Okay. And living in Virginia. And I would, I would talk to them every time on the phone when I was out here doing it at 68. Mm-hmm. And in the last, um, in the last two years, actually, unfortunately, I lost all three. I lost my mom, my pops. I lost my pops on Valentine's Day in 2006, and then I lost my mom in the same year, July 25th. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I lost my Aunt Thelma, actually, last year. So it's been a, you know, so yeah, so, you know, of course it's, you know, you know, it's a generational change, you know, and so, um, and so I, I did a lot of work on the play in terms of like, I wanted to do, after I finished the run in San Francisco, I wanted to do some dramaturgical changes, you know, and just, you know, clarify a few themes. And so I had, um, residencies like at New York Theater Workshop in New York and, and, um, a few other places. And I just, you know, worked out a few, um, things dramaturgically. And during that time, I, I, I was losing my parents, and so I was, you know, and, but amazingly enough, like, you know, I guess, you know, of course, God gives you what you need. You know, I, I came back here to San Francisco in the Bay Area to do Passing Strange, mm-hmm. which is a play about a young boy's exploration, and also he loses his mother. And so this happened, actually, actually, I don't know if you know this, I came out here mm-hmm. basically two weeks after my mother passed away to do oh, Passing nice. Strange. Oh, yeah. wow. And so that show, you know, I'm playing, and I played, you know, a character who, characters who were the inspiration to this young boy. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and that was such a healing process for me. And then I was doing that show for the last two years. You know, we just finished, and we closed our run on Broadway. And, um, and then, so it feels like, and now I'm back to a boy and a soul. So it feels like I'm bookending in, in many ways, yeah. you know. And I feel like I've gone through something, and my heart has cracked open in a different way. And so... I've been a little nervous, but also very excited to, to look at this piece again. So it's really, you know, re-examining things, and actually, and it's also even more so a celebration of family and love, because uh, now I have something to um, to immortalize. I mean, you know, I, some, some, I don't know, some, somehow I was given the grace to write this piece about family and how much, and my love for them so much. This is a, this piece is an ode to my family and the house I grew up in and soul music, and so I have this to... Uh, to share with the world and hopefully have people examine their own family and, and their own heritage and where they come from, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, um, uh, I'm Muslim, so I'm fasting, you know, um, and so um, I got there a little bit late because I needed to break fast because I was starving. Okay, yeah, 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 <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, and so anyway, and so I, you know, some of the, I mean, I'd seen it before, like I wasn't late the first time I saw it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I have seen it from the beginning, people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, <laughs> I think I came in on one of the songs, and I just loved the way you know we were singing along, and you were like talking to the audience, and you know, oh, like cool. people like right in the front row, and those of us yeah, who were not different. in the yeah. front row, because <laughs> yeah. I wasn't the only one that came in through the back through the loft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, but I was just thinking about imagery, like for instance, I just love that pocketbook. You know, your mother having oh, yeah. a pocketbook, and then yeah. the two of you, um, you know, her um, uh, sort of. Wishing on the new moon, yeah. And, and I think was there a song that was a yeah. There was um, Day, Daydreaming by Aretha Franklin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. that was a really beautiful moment. Uh, oh, thank you. That that I think you returned to um, not like yeah. that, but the pocketbook yeah. thing comes back. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah and exactly. there, there was a little clues that okay, people pay attention. <laughs> Yes, yes exactly. Yes, yes, yes. There's little <laughs> markers, and if you're paying attention, you'll you'll 
find out a, a nice central theme, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, when you're, you know, your father and your mother were dancing, that was so sweet. You all are in the in the uh, top of the stairs looking down and, like, shh. <laughs> you know, you don't want to interrupt the moment. And, you know, it's not like your little kids, like, in the Brady Bunch or something. You know, your brother right. and sister have been out, too. <laughs> right, but right, right. Exactly right. after them. Because I think yeah. you're, like, 13 or 14 or something yes. in the scene. And, yes. uh, and you're just really loving watching them love each other. Yeah. And then and then we fast forward, you know, or you know, to to the hospital when your you know, your your father is dying from heartbreak. I'm like, Whoa, yeah. that is so and and your mother, you know, sits with him in the hospital bed and, and gets him to remember that song. You yeah. know? Keep a song yeah. in your heart. Literally. And and, that, and it's and it's interesting because that that scene, you know, people were wondering someone asked me, Did all this stuff happen? And I said, Honestly, it sure did. I mean, that was the wild thing. It's like I remember it was the craziest trip when I went to visit my parents at that time, and we didn't understand what was going on with my dad. He was, he was delirious, and I didn't know what was, what exactly was going on. And we, we, the story goes actually more in depth. Actually, you know, we had an argument. I was, you know, upset with him because I, I was like, you know, and then it's funny because even after he passed, I really wondered. I raised questions like wondering if I gave that man an opportunity to, you know, I I just known him to be strong and. This is the way that he was acting out in a way, I think, you know, in many ways. At that time, he was. And I think that he didn't know how to, how to, you know, open his heart and just say, I'm feeling like this, Edie. I'm, I'm worried, and I, I'm scared of losing you, and I love you. Mm-hmm. And so these are the questions that I raised in there, just wondering, you know, the, the, the um, sort of the shortcomings of being, of always being the strong black man, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but you know, but you, but even though you know he was a strong black man, he wasn't a silent strong black man. Cause exactly, he was no, loving he the was music. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And he and he was like grooving, and he could like connect, yes. you know, the, the soul music to you know the current, you know, like the the rap artists and the other folks, yeah. and like okay, well, so and so is in the tradition, and nope, that person's yeah. not going there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 that was really yeah. great. It's funny because that, that came from you know I would just have interviews with my family. I was just like, hey, I'm I'm writing this thing. That's, I think I don't know what it is really, but what do you think <laughs> about music? You know, and then he would just and they all have an opinion. You know, you ask anybody about music, they they have an opinion. And so it's great to hear someone's someone's opinion on stage. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we have a few minutes, and I was wondering um, if you wanna um, maybe give us a little teaser. Um, I I really like well, you really do these characters so well. Um, your sister, I think. I think your sister is like your sister has got some personality. I mean, my goodness. she is. I mean, I think if I if she came into the room and I just closed my eyes and I just heard her talk, I would know. Yeah. Like you know, have other people talking, but just had her talk just from what you, you know, what you created for us on stage. I was like, yeah. that's Coleman's sister. <laughs> <laughs> and then so baby my, delicious. My, what a name! My, that is. My, my, my sister has become probably the favorite character in, in the play, oh. and uh, because she, because my sister, she is funny because um, my friend Robert, who saw the show last night, uh-huh. he was like, "Your sister's not that ghetto anymore." And I said, well, "It was probably the younger version of my sister that I'm doing, <laughs> the version of her, but also she's also very much." She's the girl that you. She's the girl that you just see on the bus. She's the girl on the bus who's a little loud, who's a little out there. Hair is done, nails done. You know, she will speak her mind. She is that brand of girl. She's a combination of like, I feel like so many women who I know and I love, and I love that they're that brazen. And so um, I love that she's just, you know, she goes, you know, I always talk about the first line, like one of the her first lines in the play. 
is a, a line, is something that she actually told me. She, she said, you know, she would pop her lips, what? And she would go, you know what, I'm a nigga. I don't put on no airs for nobody. I like my music loud and my men tough as hell. If somebody don't want to hear my music, buy some earplugs or move the fuck off the block. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that, yes. Yeah, that's a little bit of Avery. So that's a tease of Avery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just really remarkable. Uh, do you want to tell us about other things? I know I noticed in your bio that you're like all over television. Um and also I want to mention folks that, you know, you can visit Coleman at his website, ColemanDomingo dot com. And he's also yeah. got he's also on Facebook and MySpace. Oh, and he's at uh Thick Descriptions, um, Thick House uh See, the address is 1695 18th Street near Carolina. The yeah. phone number is 415-401-8081, and you can call for tickets and information, and you can also visit them at thickhouse.org. And mm-hmm. uh, the run is the 3rd, which was yesterday through the 14th, so you need to make sure you get over there, otherwise you'll be so sorry. And uh, tickets are 15 to $30 sliding scale. Yeah. Okay. So update us on what's going on that we should be looking for. Oh, please look out for, um, check out the new Spike Lee movie, uh, Miracle at St. Anna. I have a little role in that. I have a little role in that in the beginning. It's pretty fun. Um, Yeah, and then uh, look for me in movie theaters next year for Passing Strange, the movie, actually. Passing Strange that we did on Broadway. Spike Lee also, we shot shot the film version of it with Spike Lee as well. So Mm that will be coming out next year. Okay. Um, and um, also turning the TV and going the Logo Network, um, we're actually we're given the green light green light for season three of the Big Gay Sketch Show, where I play a lot of crazy characters. Well, like I play like Maya Angelou reading from Misconnections on Craigslist, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know Oprah Winfrey, and you know Fantasia. I play a lot of wild characters. I play Morgan Freeman. Uh, so you name it. So uh, it's a, it's a fun show produced by Rosie O'Donnell. And it's really silly and. And just check out the logo network. Uh, usually it's Tuesday nights at 10. Tuesday nights at 10. And um, what else? What else am I doing? Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, hopefully I'll be doing a whole bunch more stuff. So uh, I'll be around, you know. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you, Coleman. And um, I'll try to get back through there before you leave. Um, if not, good luck on the run. And thank you. Thank you it's so much for, for you. keeping us in your heart, even though you live in New York now. Oh, thank you, Wanda. You're always very special to me. Thank you so much. You always you say the most kindest words, and you're always so supportive, and I so thank you so much. Oh, you're a wonderful artist and a wonderful person. Thank you. you I'll talk to you care. soon, okay? Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Wanda. Uh, Wanda Sticks, who am I speaking to? This is Carl Deal, uh, director of Trouble the Water. Yeah. Um, and hoping to be joined shortly here by Tia Lesson, and uh, just so happy Tia, to be Tia, here. Tia, are you on the line? Uh, Tia, Tia is going to join us uh, very, very shortly. Okay. I'm trying to figure out um, who is, are you, is she, I'm trying to think which line is which. Are you the 347 number? I'm calling from the 347. She's 917. She's she's actually um. Uh, seeing if she can't loop uh, Kimberly in on the phone right now. So okay, because I, I, I think she's on the air. It's just I don't hear anything yet. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. I just want to tell you that I really, really love the movie. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it was oh, thank you. such a journey, and it just seems as if um, you and Tia were, like, in training by working on the uh, – <laughs> 
you know, um, you know, Fahrenheit 9/11 and Bowling for Columbine. It seemed like you were in training to do this, this, you know, revolutionary film, like to be there, you know, in New Orleans, you know, you know, doing the story about the. Um, well, why don't you tell us about, you know, how you happened to be in New Orleans and how you met uh, up with, um, with with Kimberly and and Scott. Sure, sure. Well, you know, Tia and I were uh, producers of Fahrenheit 9/11, and we've been. You know, we've made a lot of documentaries over the years, uh, some big big ones in the theaters and uh, some, you know, that have been on television and always some kind of, uh, you know, sort of deep political content has interested us. So when, when Hurricane Katrina hit, we felt like we wanted to to uh, get on the ground as quickly as we can in central Louisiana and see what it was that we could do, you know, with our skills as filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, what occurred to us is, you know, we kept asking ourselves, where's the help? Like everybody else who was watching on television, we saw people stranded on their roofs, you know, without food and without water. And you could see them, but they weren't getting any assistance. And, uh, you know, we we understood that uh, a lot of Louisiana National Guard were stationed in Iraq 10,000 miles away. You know, and these are people who would have signed up uh, normally to do hurricane duty and to help their communities when they when they were needed. But they were known nowhere near Louisiana. So I, um, T and I, I went to Central Louisiana on the 10th of September, just 10 days after the levees broke, uh, with the intent of of meeting some of these soldiers as they came home uh, to survey the damage in their own lives. And uh, we we did that work for about three days, and uh, then the National Guard uh, shut us down. Um, they shut us down. They said Fahrenheit 9/11 screwed it up for you guys, and uh, we don't know if they knew that that uh, exactly who we were or not, um, or that we were connected with that film. But what it did is it sent us, you know, it kind of sent us across the street to the Red Cross shelter there at a sports stadium um, in Alexandria, Louisiana, and it's there that Kimberly and Scott uh, kind of they interrupted an interview. We opened the film this way, and they stepped in front of the camera and they just started to tell us their story. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and and we um, we switched directions. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like you know it was really you know you were supposed to meet like that. You were supposed to be there just you know in the way that you know Kim really already had all that footage, you know, from you know the the storm warnings and folks that could leave and folks that couldn't get out and what happened with her and you know her sharing that with you all and then you're collaborating on the piece. Um, you know, and interweaving, you know, different parts. Uh, it was just so many great moments uh, in the film, yeah. um, you know, that I, I really, really love. Um, I love, you know, well, I don't love the funeral, but, you know, I, I like it that, you know, we actually see the loss, we feel the loss. You know, um, oh, yeah. you know people hear about, um, you know, people that people died and people lost loved ones. But then, you know, folks is like say, well, yeah, I was – you know, I was one of those men incarcerated that they just allowed to drown, you know, or, you know, we we able to get out, but they treated us, you know, you know, like human garbage. You know, they didn't care if we lived or died. And some of my, you know, some of the men did die. And then, you know, um, the way Kimberly was saying when she came back how, well, yeah, they're going to fix up, you know, the, you know, downtown and those other areas, you know, the ones on the tourist route first. And then, you know, maybe come to us and maybe not. And then, you know, this, to follow the folks that are, are not getting, who are not getting aid because of various, you know, bureaucratic, bureaucratic reasons. 
It was just really, right. really remarkable. And what I really liked, you know, the cinematography, how you had the statistics running on the on the tape, you know, the the, the yellow tape. Oh yeah, you the know? crime scene tape. You like yeah, that? that well, I mean, great. to us, New Orleans is New Orleans is a crime scene. Um, yeah. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a city, and it's not you know it's not necessarily just the city's fault, but you know, there's been. Decades and decades of neglect. I, I just, I think I just clicked. Uh, Tia, is that you? Yeah. Uh, hi. Hi. We've got an echo. Um, um, I don't know what it is. Do you, do you hear the echo? I do. Let me see if I can. How's this? Is this better? Uh, that's a little better. Um, okay. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carl was telling us about how, um, you know, uh, New Orleans. What, what were your words exactly, Carl? Well, the New Orleans is a crime scene, and you yeah. know that's what was so amazing about meeting Kimberly and Scott because we were making a film that you know we we, we kind of knew what we wanted to say, and Kimberly had had uh, videotaped on a high home video camera um, her experience uh, getting through the storm. I mean, unfortunately, her battery died after the you know after the levees broke, so uh-huh. there wasn't a lot of material to work with. But 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 we used 15 minutes of this amazing. Kimberly and Scott's point of view footage from ground zero inside the storm and from the day before the storm, like you said, when people were, you get a sense of of, people really don't have a lot of choice about staying or leaving. You either had a car or you didn't. If you had a car, you left. If you didn't, you were stuck in the city and had to weather the storm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that really, we, we, we wanted to lift that footage up and sort of build around that footage and Kimberly's amazing voice in order to tell this larger story and, you know, New Orleans is a crime scene. <laughs> and, you know, and initially, I think our, our initial idea was to look this, at uh, how the... This is lesson on the other um, director. <laughs> you know, our, our initial idea was to look at how the institutions of government failed the people of the city of New Orleans and really throughout the Gulf Coast you know, before, you know, really in the direct aftermath of Katrina, I think what our story grew into, what our film grew into, the more time we spent on the ground and the more time we spent with Kimberly and Scott was a look at how the institutions of government had been failing people all along, you know, as Carl said, for decades, you know, and they continue to fail. And this is not just happening, as you well know, along the Gulf Coast. Um, This is happening, you know, throughout the country. And then we start to wonder now, well, is this really a failure of government or is this, is this really just the logical extension of 25 years of, of, of the, you know, the right wing systematically, you know, taking away powers of the government and, and the social safety net? So these are issues that we deal with in our film, but it's really from a personal point of view. It's really, it's really through the story um, of Kimberly Scott and their friend Brian um, in, their, in their lives before, during, and after the, the, the levees broke in their community. Yeah, and, you know, now that we have, um, you know, the Gulf has also, you know, this is hurricane season, and, you know, three years later on the same day, you know, um, Hurricane Gustav, you know, was coming through and has come through, and now Hannah and then Ike and some other unnamed ones. So how how are uh, Kimberly and Scott faring now? Because um, they're, they're at home now, right? They're in they're in um, Louisiana? They're or not they home yet. No? They're not home. They they evacuated. Um, actually, they they were in Atlanta, Georgia, for the opening water there last weekend. Okay. And they flew home when when everybody else was evacuating. They flew home because they had left their dogs and their cats there, and they were on the road with the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they also had about twenty members of their family that were relying on them and counting on them to lead their way 
out of out of the Gulf. Um, and so they flew back in. They picked up their animals. They got a caravan together, and they drove out um, to Atlanta, Georgia, where Carl was waiting. And um, they're they're looking forward, I think, in the next day or two days to return to their communities. There's, there's, it's not clear whether power's back on. There's a lot of confusion about what what's really going on on the ground there, but they're, they they understand that their their home is safe. Yeah. Um, earlier in the show, um, I had um, a talk with someone who's on the ground there, and she said that the electricity is not on in the poor areas because she was in the seventh ward, and there's no electricity there. So I'm sure there's no electricity in the ninth ward. Um, and uh, or does um, is Kimberly? Does that where their their house is still? Is it there? In the ninth their ward? house is in the upper ninth ward. Yeah. Upper ninth ward. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's so a, perhaps they're not living in the same neighborhood. They're not living on the same street that that that. Um, they were living before Katrina. That that those rental houses have just not been brought up. Um, it, at best, the landlords have slapped a coat of paint on it. Worse, they're just you know gutted and lying there unoccupied. So um, they're they're staying in a different part of the night ward. Yeah, um, and then the person who's um, who was speaking this morning uh, earlier today, she said that um, that there that. There aren't a lot of people that have returned. Um, there, there's a lot of um, military and police presence, more so than than residents uh, in in New Orleans presently. Well, that, I, I mean, that, that the, I believe. The 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 fact is that um, tens of thousands of people, poor people, have not been able to return to New Orleans after after Katrina and after the levees broke in their communities because there's no housing there for them. 50,000 units of public housing have been systematically, you know, destroyed. And these were, you know, many of these were livable public housing units. Right. And there's been no one-for-one replacement. So already you had tens of thousands of people who couldn't come home. And um, and and so I think the number of people without vehicles was not 100,000 this time. It was more like 30,000. Um, so my question is, where are those 70,000 people? Who lived in New Orleans at the time of Katrina and were no longer in New Orleans at the con- you know time time of, of Gustav and and I think we know the answer to that. They're they're waiting to come home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, could either one of you all speak about um, sort of um, this relationship you know with uh, with Kimberly and Scott? Um, had you ever um, you know had this kind of relationship with you know in making a film before? Is this something new or were there any aspects of this particular film project that are different from other projects you've all have uh, worked on? Well, you know, our our challenge in making this film was to was to be true to the voices of the people, um, and particularly, you know, Kimberly and Scott, who are the main featured, you know, characters. But they're not just characters, they're not just subjects. You know, in, in, in many ways they're collaborators. Kimberly's music is featured in the film. Her footage um, is featured at the beginning of the film. You know, she's got a very strong voice, and what we really tried to do um, was was resist, I think, the impulses that a lot of documentary filmmakers have, which is drown out those kinds of voices with expert interviews and and um, statistics and information. And and what we really tried to do, as Carl was saying before, was to was to elevate, you know, her voice so it really carries you through the film. Um, you know, when we landed on the ground in, in in central Louisiana, we hadn't intended to tell that story. We didn't really want to put a camera in the, in, in the face of somebody who just been through, you know, the worst reveal in their lives. But Kimberly and Scott were so eager to share their footage and to invite us along, and they really felt that 
their voice spoke to experiences that certainly were not being covered in the mainstream media and really, you know, except for shows like yours, aren't really out there. Um, and so it was it was a it was a challenging relationship. I mean, first of all, Kimberly and Scott um, had a lot of reason to distrust, you know, the media because of the way the media has parachuted in their communities, um, particularly after Katrina and then left. And, you know, and we, for all intents and purposes, are, are part of the media. You know, we're, we, but we're different because we really wanted to stick around for the long term. Um, and so we built, you know, we, over, over time we built a relationship with, with them and we hope um, that to continue that relationship for, for a lifetime. Um, they've been on the road with the film. They're, they're proudly representing um, the people of New Orleans and, and people throughout the country who just don't have a chance to speak. And they're sorry that they can't be on the show right now. Um, uh, Kimberly's bringing her cat to the vet at, the, at this moment, and so she just wasn't able to, to reschedule that appointment. Um, yeah. But she would love to talk to you at some point, Wanda, so if you want her on, oh, yeah. I'm going to hook you guys up directly. Oh, excellent. You know what I really would love to talk about is her music. I just love the way you have, you know, integrated, you know, I'm so happy that someone had some of her music that had been lost in the in the uh, in the flood and the storm. You know, when you, yeah. when you all are playing the piece, um, what was it called? Uh, it was you know, amazing. Yeah, ma- oh, amazing! It's yeah. so amazing! Oh, isn't it awesome? Oh my god! You know what? It is. It is. And and after after um after spending, you know, we were I was on the road for about a month with Kimberly and Scott at that point. Okay. And I guess I could say that nothing would have surprised me uh, that that either one of them would do. But yeah. we really had no idea that, that Kimberly was such a talented writer and performer. And, uh, you know, there's this moment in the film where she discovers the music that she thought she had lost. She'd recorded a dozen tracks in an underground studio, you know, from the time she was a teenager. And, you know, people lost everything in the storm, and she thought she'd lost her music, but we dis- she discovered this uh, CD. And, you know, she performs in the film this autobiographical song called Amazing that kind of it just compacts her whole life into this explosive po- poetry that is um, definitely a crowd pleaser one. I mean, you saw it. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I need the soundtrack. Oh, yes, it's so beautiful. Well, and then, and then I would say, you know, oh, she, you oh, cool. Kimberly, Kimberly, Kimberly continued to 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 write. Actually, after the storm, you know, passed and and they started rebuilding their lives in Memphis, she just started writing. She became very prolific, and uh, you know, she she ceased to be an aspiring rap artist and just became a full blown rapper. And uh, since they've moved back to New Orleans, she and Scott have founded a record company called Born Hustler Records. And uh, their web address is, it's Born, okay, I'll repeat it, it's Born Hustler Records, and you can find more of her music at bornhustlerrecords.com. Oh, cool. Um, We actually, you know, through the course of of making the film, uh, while she was writing more music, you know, she kept sending us cuts, and we were able to incorporate four of her songs into the film. You know, along along with another a soundtrack that also includes you know Massive Attack, uh, the British trip hop band that that scored the film. You know, we have some you know blues from John Lee Hooker and some you know alternative rock um, from Citizen Cope. Uh, some amazing gospel from both T.K. Soy and Mary Mary. So it's a really amazing soundtrack. Oh, 
and, and, and don't forget Dr. John, who plays the title song, Wade in the Water. Oh, yeah. well, that's Dr. John. Yeah, I was going to say, I really like Wade in the Water. <laughs> and yeah. Then, yeah, and then, you know, how you how you close out, you know, with the uh, the second line at City Hall. That is so great. Um, you yeah. Know, to sort of like, you know, because, you know, as African people, you know, we mourn. You know, we don't get a chance to mourn our people, particularly in film. <laughs> you know, people just die, and then it's like, it's almost like they're forgotten. Right. So for you to have, like, you know, devote a significant part of the piece, the closing to that, like, okay, folks, you know, people have died, and we need to honor that and not let their their lives have gone in vain and also to have learned something from that so that this doesn't happen again. That is so beautiful. Yes, and it's it's always... Thank you for saying that. And it's always very forward-looking, Wanda. That's the beautiful thing. You know, um, out of all the tragedy of Katrina, this is a story that's always looking forward to, to creating something new. And I think that's that's what closing with the second line does as well, because it's, you know, it, it's all about hope. Yes. And actually, the second line, let me mention, is um, the Free Agents Brass Band. Is a, is a New Orleans band. And, oh, you're, you're echoing again. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Free Agents Brass Band is on our website, um, TroubleTheWaterFilm.com, as well as a link to Kimberly's music, Black Cole Medina is her MC name, and many of the, of the other artists, uh, you know, in the film. We also have um, organi- links to organizations on our website that are working on the ground, um, doing service work and advocacy work and education um, throughout the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, Louisiana, and also throughout the country, you know, working on issues, not on extreme weather, but extreme poverty. You know, this is, Katrina was not about extreme weather. It was about poverty. It was about government indifference. It was about, you know, the abandonment of the poorest, you know, in this, in this country. And so we feel very strongly about using this film um, to make connections to the underlying issues that still exist, that continue to exist, even when all those floodwaters receded. And we really want to encourage your listeners to go to our website, to look at these organizations that are working on the ground, um, check out our trailer there, spread the word about the film, and also get involved because um, people, you know, people, whether it's reading about those groups, donating, and getting involved, you know, um, on the ground with them, it's it's also important, you know, to take action and you know join and build this movement to make change happen. Right. Yeah, and we really appreciate um, Tia your invitation to. Um, the artists that you know put together the um, the collection of poetry words upon the waters to to be able to um, to do a fundraiser at the Berkeley screening um, on Saturday evening. Um, I think it's seven o'clock. Um, yeah, we're going to be at the seven ten, and I I believe um, that both you and Carl are going to be there also, aren't you? Uh, that's right. Um, at least one of us are going to be there. One of us may have to go to San Francisco. But any of these, any, any, you know, we want people to use these screenings as community events to talk about the issues that you that matter most to you. If you want to buy tickets and resell them and 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 raise money for your groups, if you want to hold a reception afterwards, if you, you know, whatever, you know, groups want to do to to build this, to use this film to build their work, we we really invite you to do that because that's what this is all about. Yeah, I wanted you to talk uh, for a moment about the partnership with uh, Danny Glover's uh, Louverture Films. Um, I mean, it's you know when you read sort of the the mission of of the company, it's like oh yes, you know one that can understand you know why you know they would say yes. But could you talk about that relationship and how you developed it? Well, Louverture Films is is 
devoted, um, Danny Glover and Jocelyn Barnes' company, Literature Films, is dedicated to creating and, and supporting works um, of artistic integrity um, and also social impact and, and some commercial value. So they're, they're, they've got a, many documentary projects going on, and they also are in the midst of producing um, narrative fiction films. And um, we were having a really hard time, I tell you, for two years. We were working on this film as we were editing this film, as we were um, going back and forth, you know, to Louisiana shooting it. We kept, you know, trying to raise funds, and, and we got it from some, from some significant sources like the Sundance Institute and the Soros Documentary Fund. But quite frankly, when we went to the networks and we went to the studios, we kept the same thing, which is find some white characters and come back to us. I mean, oh wow! Wanda, that's what we heard, and wow. and even worse than that. And and yeah. we we didn't just you know get discouraged. We just kept on it. Um, when when we showed the film to Jocelyn Barnes, she knew that this was a project that Danny Glover you know would respond to. Um, and he saw the film, um, and immediately called us up and said, you know, I want to be of service to this film. He cares about you know the issues. He's been going back and forth to Louisiana for 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 years, and in the aftermath of Katrina, did a lot to get money you know in the areas most most needed, most hardest hit. Mm-hmm. You know, so he immediately responded to the film, and I think he also saw in it a, an opportunity to inspire um, and engage young people, you know, throughout the country. Because you know, in the end, though it's about a tragedy, it's also about a deeply inspiring couple of young people who take crisis in their lives and parlay it into, you know, something beautiful and, and, and become their own first responders and, and, as Danny says, you know, architects of their own rescue. They don't wait around for other people to come along because those people don't come along. They just they, they do it themselves. So so I don't want to speak for Danny. I wish I wish he were here to speak for, you know, to it himself, but what, what he said in the past is that he really sees this film as an opportunity to, to engage young people and to inspire them you know, to act. And um, and so we're so grateful to have Literature Film support um, because of their involvement. We were able to um, secure finishing funds that, that enabled us to take our film to Sundance. And we won the Grand Jury Prize there. Okay, um, we had a lot of success, you know, at festivals. Um, all the reviews have been, you know, across the board, very positive, very glowing about this film from Time Magazine to the New York Times, you know, to this morning's Chronicle. Um, but we still had a hard time getting a distributor, getting somebody to believe that this is a film that should make it, to, you know, into the theater. Um, this time we heard that, oh, people don't want to hear about economic hard times during economic hard times. They want happy stories. They want superhero stories. And we said, well, this is a superhero story. This is about a superhero named Kimberly Rivers Roberts and her husband Scott. Um, and so we just stuck at it, and we, you know, the film is in the theaters right now. It's playing around the country. We feel like this is a huge success um, for documentary filmmakers and people making social issue films. We're out to prove these distributors wrong. We're out to prove these network executives wrong. We want this film to be, you know, seen all, far and wide, and your listening audience can help, you know, make it clear for this film and for future films that people on the ground do care about these issues. They want to see their stories you know, up up in the cinema, and um, and they will make it out to the theaters, you know, this weekend in the Bay Area, this weekend in New York City, and in the coming weekends throughout the country. And you can see the play dates on our website, TroubleTheWaterFilm.com. Right, yeah, and we should tell folks that uh, the film is opening tonight, or this today, 
in San Francisco at um, at uh, Sundance Kabuki Theaters in San Francisco. I believe that's um, Post Street at Gary, and uh-huh. uh, in San in Oakland. Excuse me, not Oakland. Sorry, that's too bad. But in Berkeley, <laughs> the film is Berkeley, Oakland. If it does well in Berkeley, it'll come to Oakland. I can guarantee oh, that. Oh, good, good. It'd be great if the Grand Lake Theater could get it and. Um, the Embarcadero Cinemas could get it. Um, and then it's going to be in Berkeley at Shattuck Cinemas, and it opens on Saturday at the Shattuck Cinemas. And, and the, no, actually, and the, it opens tonight. It opens, oh, it opens tonight. Oh, it, oh, in both places? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh that's why you're going to be, you know, and, you know, you, uh, you're going you know, to be in one place and Carl's going to be in another place. That's exactly oh, that's right. Oh, excellent. Yes, and yes. And we will we will be at the, uh, at the, uh, the Q&A for the – the prime time screening at the Shattuck in Berkeley, along with Danny Glover this evening. Oh, super, super. Okay, is the prime time, is that the evening one, the first evening? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, that's wonderful. So come on out and see all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always wonderful to, to meet the directors and Danny Glover. You know, he's like a superstar in the Bay Area, you know, a humanitarian and a hero. So it's always great to you know to be in his company and wow you all are just doing such marvelous work with getting those images and stories out that we don't you know see enough of and so I want to well, thank, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Wanda. Thank, thank you. We really yeah. appreciate your support and we look forward to seeing you on Saturday night. Yes, you will. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, and great. I uh, have a good time tonight um, at the screenings. Great. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having. And us. look Take forward care. to your show with Kimberly. Okay, sure. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, um, well, it's been a really full, it's been a really full uh, morning. Um, you know, don't forget to go see Trouble the Waters, A Boy um, and His Soul, the um, um Call me Mr. Robinson. Um, Joe Sam has an exhibit opening um, at the Joyce Gordon Gallery, uh, downtown Oakland tonight. The Oakland Museum has a great lineup for First Fridays. You need to check the uh, Oakland Museum website uh, to find out the details. Banned and Recovered um, opens at the African American Museum and Library this evening. Uh, the reception is at 6.30. The African American Museum and Library is on 14th Street at MLK. Um, there's a conference coming called Facing Race in November. Um, Before the Dream uh, opens on Saturday, but but there is, uh, you know, um, a preview tonight. So don't forget to go out to the Noodle Factory and see Before the Dream, The Mysterious Death and Life of Richard Wright at Oakland Public Theater. And thanks so much. We want to thank the African Sisters Media Network once again for allowing WandaSpicks.com to be on the air under their banner. And until we see you again, have a wonderful, wonderful week and uh, enjoy.
It's time to answer the call, little buddy. I'm talking about big beef, dislocate your jaw kind of wide. This, that, charbroiled unicorn boy, bacon, big pig, slab, cut thick, sizzling for shizzling on velvet sheet of ooey gooey. A wild, wild western bacon cheeseburger. Call Junior. I'm calling your name. It's time to answer the call, little buddy. I'm talking about big beef, dislocate your jaw kind of wide. This, that, charbroiled unicorn boy, bacon, big pig, slab cut thick, sizzling for shizzling on velvet sheet of ooey gooey. A wild, wild western bacon cheeseburger. Call Junior. I'm calling your name. <laughs> 